Dr. Donald G. Mondragon. Thanks for coming in. Oh, my pleasure, Nathan. I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> so you've had quite the life. I have, Nathan, but please call me Skip. All right, Skip. So I want to start with you've been married 40 years. It'll be 40 years on the 30th of May. That is correct, Nathan. Yes, sir. Uh, how do you stay married that long? <laughs> what are the tips as a guy who's newly married? What are the tips? Well, first and foremost, you realize you need help. And that help primarily and foremost comes from God. You don't go it alone. But then you need the support of others. We've had supportive parents, my wife's parents were married over 60 years before they passed away. The example of my parents and their marriage, albeit my father uh, passed away several years ago, my stepfather, and loving siblings, that, that community supporting you. And then the determination that we're in this for life. There was a chaplain that we had at Oral Roberts University, Bob Stamps, now Dr. Bob Stamps, and Brother Bob, as he was called back then, he would have Friday night communion. And that was one of our favorite times of the week. We would go to Friday night communion. And we remember very distinctly Brother Bob talking about marriage because he was newly married, albeit he was in his... He was in his 40s, mid-40s. But Brother Bob would talk about marriage. And in fact, he was married to a lady, Ellen. And Ellen was Dutch. And she had actually been the companion to uh, Corey Ten Boom. If you're familiar with Corey Ten Boom. I'm not. Corey Ten Boom was a Holocaust survivor. Her wow. whole family died in the Holocaust in the prison camps. But Corey Ten Boom then later wrote a book. She became a well-known evangelist and a movie, The Hiding Place, the same name by of her book, was uh, a movie back in the 70s that came out. But Corey, uh, let me go back to Bob Stamps. So he's married to Ellen, and they married both later. But he talked about marriage. And the idea of marriage, once you're married, he said, before you're married, it's like this, you have this open window. But after you're married, you close the window, you lock it, and then you nail it shut, never to be opened again. And Sherry and I took that to heart. And yes, you know, you have your ups and downs, you have difficult things, but you learn to forgive you laugh, and you learn to be friends who go through life together, face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder against the difficulties of life, and you have one another's back. So those things are the things that keep you married for 40 years, realizing that it's difficult at times, but it only gets sweeter as time goes on. Wow. Yeah, so you took marriage seriously as why you've been married so long. <laughs> Absolutely. We went into it with the idea that this isn't a trial run. This isn't, oh, if it gets hard, we're bailing. No, 
this is for a lifetime. Yeah, because I... I'm around a bunch of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are, are terrible partners for the most part. And so I've watched a lot of people I've done business with go through divorces. And for me, I, my parents have been married 30 years. My grandparents were married 50 years on both sides. You know, I'm used to just people being together for a long yes. time. And so to see all that is like one, I've heard it's from their over ambition is where, is where it comes from is that entrepreneurs are over ambitious. And so they're always looking for something to like, for something more, a kind of thing, like instead of just being happy with what they have or so on and so forth. So I always ask that question to people that have been married for a long time because, and it, it tends to come down to these two things of people that take relationships, one serious, like they take it serious and they understand that it is a commitment more than it is love in the sense of that I am like this family unit matters more than just you and I, like they, they approach it as like a unit. Um, and so those are the two things that I, I tend to notice a lot. And love is a choice. Love isn't necessarily a feeling. Sure, there's feelings. But there's days you, you wake up and it's not like, oh, I'm so in love. <laughs> there's days you, you, you wake up and you might be irritated with your wife. You might be frustrated. You might be angry. Or during the day you get angry with your wife. But you choose to love. No matter what, you choose to love. And I think that's one of the problems with some people is, oh, I don't have, I'm not in love. <laughs> Get over it. <laughs> love is a choice. Yeah. It's not a feeling. And when you can understand that, you realize that bond grows. Like I said, it gets sweeter and sweeter as time goes on. But yeah, you're going to get angry. Yeah, you're going to get frustrated. Of course, you're going to be angry, frustrated, irritated, and there's going to be idiosyncrasies that drive you batty. But you're going to look, overlook them, and you're going to realize, oh, my wife puts up <laughs> with a whole lot more than I do in terms of my idiosyncrasies. And she's been far more tolerant and so supportive of my career and of my, the demands of what have been placed upon me over the years. So let's dive into that. When did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? That's an interesting story. Growing up in junior high, and especially in high school, I had a lot of people say, you should be a doctor. You should be a doctor. I was an exemplary high school student, and I would think, no way, no way. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, doctors work too much. They work too hard. I didn't want to spend that much time working. <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of uh, physical therapy, uh, a physiologist, something along this line. I was an athlete. I was a wrestler. I was a very good wrestler. And I was thinking, no, I don't want to put that time and effort into becoming a doctor. I was thinking, I'm going to go to physical therapy school. But in my senior year, it was this idea. Medicine, physical therapy school, it's an easier jump from going pre-med back to physical therapy than trying to go to physical therapy if I wanted to go to medicine. I started rethinking that. 
So I decided to go pre-med. That's the route I took. But it was a very circuitous route in terms of college. Yeah, talk, talk, take me through that. Well, I received an Army ROTC scholarship, a four-year Army ROTC scholarship to the University of Notre Dame. Well, I received the scholarship, and then I started getting letters from all over the place. I can't tell you the number of in- letters that I received with institutions. Did you wrestle in college, too? I did. I started. I was a mediocre college wrestler. I was an outstanding high school wrestler, finished my career, two-time district champion, state runner-up, honorable mention All-American. And then in freestyle, which was my forte, one of the Olympic styles, I had won multiple state championships, placed in a couple national champ um, tournaments, but mediocre in college for a variety of reasons. But I'm at the University of Notre Dame, and there I was struggling. In fact, at my first semester, I struggled miserably in calculus. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> calculus was my nemesis. I hadn't taken uh, trigonometry uh, as a senior that I should have taken. And I'm not trying to age you, but this was before TI-83s and 84s, right? Yeah, you, had, you, had the, you had the very basic model of uh, they were using uh, their my colleagues there were carrying around the slide rules. Okay, <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever seen a slide. Yeah, so rule. my my grandfather was an engineer. Okay, um, so you you remember the slide rule then? Yeah, but I didn't take one, math analysis and trigonometry, so I get to calculus. And my advisor, I was telling him, I don't have the background for calculus. I I need to take this course. No, 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 you need to take calculus. I went back to see this counselor probably th- at least four times or more. I don't have the background. I'm struggling. I pr- probably studied at least two hours, maybe some nights three hours on my calculus. I'd go to see my calculus professor at least three times a week, struggling, trying to get this. And I ended up with a D. I think it was a D minus. But you passed. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I had bombed. My first semester, I was so discouraged. I went home uh, at Christmas time. I remember getting home, and it was a blizzard. In fact, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to catch the flight from O'Hare International Airport in Chicago. I got a ride from a friend that lived in Chicago, and the traffic on the main the traffic on the main thoroughfare, I don't remember what the highway there, I don't think it was I-70, it might have been, I can't remember which highway, but the traffic had come to a standstill. And remember, we got out, and this guy kept marveling. I can't believe we're standing on this. I can't believe we're standing here. I can't believe we're standing here. But it was several hours late. So I get in, and my siblings, uh, several of them had, were waiting there in the airport. But it was, I think it was after midnight. On that. But I was so discouraged. I thought I had bombed. <laughs> but I get my report card during Christmas break. I think it was like a 3.35, even with a D minus in calculus. Because I had gone to see my counselor or see the counselor and changed all my courses. I said, I'm bombed out of pre-med. I guess I'm going to have to change this. And I changed my schedule. 
get my report card. Oh my gosh, I can still do this. So went back to see them right after I got back. I had to go back early because of wrestling. I go back, rechange, uh, get back into those courses, change to a new calculus professor. I'm spending probably a third of the time studying calculus. This professor was incredible, and I got a B minus in my second semester. I was, oh, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. <laughs> so I get through my first year. I get into my second year, and by going into my junior year, I make the decision, something's got to give. Something has got to give. I'm not wrestling up to par. I don't feel my academics are up to par. I can't juggle both here at the university level, so I decide I'm not going to wrestle. At the same time, a relationship that I had been... All right. <laughs> At the same time, a relationship I had been in with a young lady that I was very much in love with that I started dating before my senior year in high school was falling apart, and that was having an impact on me. God was working in my life in a new way. I had committed my life to Christ the summer, or rather at the end of my junior year in high school, and all these confluence of things came together, and I began to say, what, what am I doing here? Why am I here? And that was in my fifth semester at the University of Notre Dame. And then I decided I was going to leave school. So I left. I dropped out of school. Dropped out of med school well, or pre-med? Pre-med. Terminated my scholarship. What I didn't realize, it didn't dawn on me till later when I went back to visit in the spring and I went back to see the commandant and some others, some of the instructors in the um, ROTC program that they could have told me, you have got to go enlist in the Army because after your second year, you're committed. And somewhere in all of that, I had lost. Didn't dawn on me. Oh, I'm committed to the Army now <laughs> after my sophomore year. But the commandant, he actually gave me a certificate. It was framed for two years in the ROTC program, and he said, Skip, I knew you weren't trying to get out of this. It was God's grace. But then the next, so that was <clears throat> 75, and the next two and a half years. So I went home, and I was seeking God diligently. I probably would spend 12, 14 hours a day so pray without ceasing you took pretty seriously. Yes, praying, studying the scripture, listening to tapes. Yeah, so if there were pastors, <laughs> like I just listened to podcasts or, you know, YouTube, how did you, if you wanted to find a new pastor, you buy a tape, how would that work? 
That was it. That was pretty much it. You would you would go find a cassette tape. Back then, it was cassettes. Were there only a few pastors that even had that available? No, there were several at okay. the time. There were several. And then I would dig into the scripture. I had my concordance, and I would do studies. I read the Bible completely through, and I would just spend hours and hours and hours a day. Did a lot of fasting. Did this seeking God, saying, God, you've called me to this, and thinking that the dream of medicine was gone, that God had something else for me. How can I go into medicine God, you're calling me into something and not seeing how medicine, it could be medicine if God was calling me to something. Trying to figure what that was. I was raised as a Roman Catholic, but exposed to the Episcopal faith because my stepfather was an Episcopalian. <clears throat> so that, that idea is certainly in Catholicism, although the True doctrine wouldn't say that, but in practice, it's a faith of works. And I had this sense of growing up, there was always a God. I never doubted that there was a God, but that he was distant. And the hope was that we believed, yes, he was the father of Jesus Christ, but that, that I would do enough good <laughs> that it outweigh the bad so that at the end of my life, God would welcome me into heaven. That was the way I understood things. <clears throat> I had a friend, and I'm getting going back now how I came to, to know the Lord, if I may. <clears throat> I had a friend, Annette Clum was her name. I knew her from junior high. Now we're in high school. And Annette was involved with Young Life. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with Young Life. Yeah, how long has Young Life been around? Oh, Young Life, I think, started maybe in the, at least the 60s, oh, I okay. say. Maybe <laughs> yeah. the 50s? I thought it was like 15, 20 years old. No, no, no. It's been around a long time. It's <clears throat> crazy. I think the 50s. But she would invite me week after week after week to Young Life. No, nah, no, nah, I'm too busy. I got to work out. Because I used to work out like a fiend. I mean, I would work out hard in the off-season, <clears throat> course in the season, wrestling season. What did you, what weight, weight did you wrestle at? High school, 112 pounds. I'm a heavyweight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not much bigger now. <laughs> Man. So, um, and then I got, oh, I got too much studying in Ed. Oh, I got to study. It, it was, I just didn't want to go. Yeah, of course. I was putting her off. But she'd ask me over and over. And over, week in and week out. And I remember some some friends, Janie, Janie Roos, I believe that was Janie's last name at the time, and Mike Allred, they were dating at the time, and they were classmates, <clears throat> and they tried to talk to me about Christ. And I was really turned off at that point. At about the age of 14, 15, I became turned off. It was like, tired of talk. I want to see actions. And that's what I told them, basically. I'm tired of talk. I want to see actions. But Annette kept asking me, come come join us, Skip. Come join us. Towards the end of junior year, for some reason, I finally went 
to a Young Life meeting. And I'll remember very distinctly the songs they were singing about Christ and knowing him, honoring him. I'm looking around, these kids I went to school with. Whoa, they have something I don't. Realizing that, what do they have that I don't? But the other thing that even struck me even more, there was this young woman, I believe she was a freshman at the University of Colorado, and this young woman glowed. There was something about her that was profound. And she was standing up there talking and sharing about how God had sustained her while her mother died of breast cancer. So here's this 18, 19-year-old kid up there, just a few years older than I was, glowing, telling about the fact that her mother was a young woman, wasn't that old, had gone through this horrible battle and Years later now, I understand, a young woman that gets cancer typically is very aggressive, but had gone through this, died from the cancer, and how God had sustained her. I left that meeting, and that's about all I could think of. So between my working out, my studying, that's what come back to mind. But God was working because... Now I, was, I had been achieving my goals academically, athletically. But I'd sit at, on my bed after I'd turn off the lights at night, and I'd sit there, and I remember thinking to myself, is this all there is to it? Is this all there is to it? So there was a, an emptiness, something that wasn't fulfilling enough, even though I was achieving my goals. So all of this is working in concert. And I used to take this walk. And in Colorado, one of the things that happened, so I lived in, Where mile, in Colorado, in, in the Mile High City. In I was in Colorado. Uh, we just got back. We were there Thursday through Monday. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I missed the mountains. <laughs> but I had this walk. And so I'd walk from our house, and it it would go up to this hillside. In fact, I believe it's called Hill Hillside Drive. But I walk from the house to the crest of this hill, you know, the the top of that drive there. <clears throat> and what was beautiful about it, if you'd look out to the west, I had this beautiful view of the mountains. And the time I liked to go out and walk was at twilight. And then if I looked to the east, I had this magnificent view of the Denver skyline. And Denver has a magnificent skyline. And I would go out and I would think and enjoy the beautiful weather and then the stars as the sun after it get dark and the quietness that falls at that time of the day. I realized later I was praying. I didn't understand that at the time, but I was praying. And so I don't know how many days, a week or so later, 
after that Young Life meeting, I'm walking. And I'm up on that crest of that hill. And in an instant of time, I understood. I understood the gospel message. Alone. Alone. I understood that God the Father had sent Jesus Christ the Son to die for my sins. And that through Christ, God was not distant. But he wanted me to be reconciled to him. I understood in that flash that I was a sinner in need of Christ. And there I remember in my heart, I don't know that I said anything out loud, reaching out and saying, this is what I need. This is what I want. And understanding my life would never be the same again. And it hasn't. So back to my original question, the path to med school. Okay. Yeah. So now after that digress, <laughs> so we're, we're back. I'm seeking God. This is 1975 going into 1976. I start taking odd jobs there at 76. And then I go to work with a ministry in Hot Springs, Arkansas with Glenn and Irma Miller. <laughs> That's where I was born. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hot Springs Bible Camp and um, Campgrounds. Charismatic. I had received what we call the gift of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues when I was in college because I had been involved with the Navigators. But after that happened, there were some of us that got the left foot of fellowship, as we call it. <laughs> but I worked with them, and their ministry largely revolved around deliverance, praying for people to... Um, who literally needed deliverance from demons. And so uh, they were so patient with me. Oh, my gosh. Because I was this impetuous uh, young man who needed mentoring, who needed tempering. I worked with them for a year. But then I realized I need to go home and mend fences with my parents, and bolster relationships with my siblings. So I went home to work on that. And that's what I did. Because the year before I left, I remember sitting down with, at least, with my two youngest brothers, Duke and Chris, and sharing the gospel with them. And Chris and Duke will laugh and they'll say, yeah, you, you shared the gospel of a fiery hell with <laughs> but they came to know Christ and subsequently my my siblings would say skip you influence us all to come to know Christ so i have seven siblings and they all walk with Christ so did you think that you were just going to have a life in ministry i mean you know because obviously 
you were around other believers, but you were taking your faith more seriously than probably the most people you knew or were or grew up with. So did you think, okay, maybe God's just calling me to full-time ministry? I did, but I knew it wasn't going to be as a pastor because I, I didn't feel my personality was well suited. At that time, I was a very black and white person, a very rigid person. Thank goodness God has tempered me <laughs> greatly over the years. So I knew I wasn't suited for something You knew you were like suited that. for the Army. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So I wasn't sure where, and that was part of the struggle. And I was frustrated, and that frustration was growing. And I was taking – and I was doing odd jobs. I worked at a fitness club. Later, I worked at a nursing home, and even then, before I finally went back to school, I worked at a car wash. So here I'm taking these minimal paying jobs. In fact, I remember the car wash, there was a guy that was a year ahead of me in school, and I'm working there, and he's bringing in a car, and I'm hoping, oh, I hope he doesn't see me. (laughs) I hope he doesn't recognize me. And he does. <laughs> hey, Skip, how you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm doing well. You know, uh, yeah. you know, he brings in his first car. I think he brought in three cars that day to be cleaned. <laughs> so you can imagine how that made me feel. You know, oh, geez. But I had to. Uh, what happened there? I, my frustration is growing because I, I can't seem to get a job other than these minimal minimum wage jobs. I'm thinking I've got two years of college. I'm bright. I'm hardworking. I'm got initiative. Why can't I land a job? I'm applying to these different things. People tell me you're overqualified. Good gravy. Come on now. (laughs) Give me a chance. You don't have experience. Well, how am I going to get experience if I can't get hired? Come on. I'm bright. I've got initiative. I'm hardworking. Take a bet on me. I couldn't for the life of me. I remember taking one job where we were selling encyclopedias. That turned out to be a bus. Going door to door. I remember being in South Dakota selling encyclopedias in this rural district. Oh, my gosh. It was horrible. I didn't sell any encyclopedias. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. How many people lived in South Dakota? <laughs> it's not a populist state. Yeah. It's one of the least Like if I have to sell encyclopedias, I'm doing maybe New York City. I'm doing a place a lot of yeah. doors. Yeah, some place where you can knock on doors, knock on yeah. doors, knock on doors. You're driving like 10 minutes for every door. <laughs> that was a bust. I'm just getting more and more frustrated. Now, our family doctor, Dr. Gilbert Maestas, or Dr. Gill as we called him, he was a good family friend also. He recognized that I was struggling, and he had told my mom, Esther, have Skip come have lunch with me. I'd like to talk with him. And it was maybe November, sometime after Thanksgiving, my mom mentioned that to me. I tucked it away. Didn't act on it yet. You didn't send him an email? 
It, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. What year is this? This is nineteen seventy-seven. Yeah, so no, no email. You didn't send him a text real quick. <laughs> I didn't even call him. But right after the new year, I remember picking up the phone, calling Doctor Gill. Doctor Gill, when can I come have lunch with you? So I called him. We arranged a day. What I didn't realize in retrospect, and I'll tell you that, he had arranged some things for me. We had lunch, and it was a very simple lunch, I remember. We had peanut butter with crackers, some apple slices, and I think some cheese slices. Man, if there's not meat, it's not lunch. That's kind of my, <laughs> my rule. Yeah, I'm hearing you, buddy. <laughs> but yeah, it was very simple, but it was the conversation. And he's asked me, Skip, what do you want to do? What are you, what are you thinking about doing? I think I want to go back to school, Dr. Gill. <sighs> I think that's what I want to do. Well, we proceeded to go across the way to the hospital. So his office was in the office building next to the hospital, Mercy Hospital at the, in Denver. So we go across, and he had arranged for me to talk with an, a general internist, if I remember correctly, cardiologist, radiologist, his good friend John Sinitas, who later did surgery on me, the general surgeon, pathologist, and these men seemed to have all the time in the world for me, answered my questions, talked about what they did, radiologist showing radiographs and so forth, pathologist explaining things that he was doing, the extent of his profession. And then we, so that took a few hours. Came back to Dr. Gill's office. We sat down. He said, Skip, what do you want to do? I said, Dr. Gill, I want to go back to school. I want to go back to a school that's a smaller school that has a medical school. He said, good. His parting words to me that day, and I remember it was a dreary day in Denver. It had snowed, and the snow was slushy. And Every you know, day during the winter? <laughs> how it gets, well, not in Denver, not in Denver. <laughs> how it gets gray and slushy after a while, just mixed with the dirt and grime. And that's the kind of day it was. And I remember that very clearly. But his parting words were to me, Skip, whatever you do, Get on with it. Just get on with it. And that day, what Dr. Gill did for me was he reignited that passion that I, I thought was dead, that flame for medicine that I thought had died when I left the University of Notre Dame. It fanned that flame back into existence. So I began to look at what schools, smaller schools, had associated medical schools. And I narrowed it down to two schools, Creighton University and Oral Roberts University. And I applied to both schools. I received my acceptance notice to Creighton. And back those days, remember, we don't have the internet. We don't have... Anything so, so checking the mail is a pretty big deal. Yeah, so you're going to the library, 
to call through schools and find that information. Okay, that's how you find information. Uh, so interesting. Yeah, pulling out books and you know <laughs> looking this up to say okay. Yeah. So I guess I think about like if you were to because I look at okay applying to a college you just you know you get the document but how you get the document is you download the PDF. So if you how would you so you would call the school and they would mail you documents to fill out. Right. You would you would end up doing that or you'd mail or you'd write them. I can't remember what it was. I I'm trying to think. I think you wrote them. And said, I'm interested in your school. Would you please send me the application? Oh, so you wrote your cover letter to get the application. Yes. And then you get the application. Of course, you're doing this all by – I haven't checked my mail in three weeks. I mean that's course, just how little – This is how you're doing it all by hard copy and then submitting your application, waiting to hear back from the admission commi- uh, committee. So I hear from – now we're going on into – it's springtime now. April timeframe. I hear from Creighton. You've been accepted. So I arrange a visit to Creighton. Like the school, smaller, like the campus, like the location, Omaha, Nebraska. And they keep telling me, you'll do great here. If you were at Notre Dame, you'll do great here. I'm thinking, oh, I think I'll go here. But I hadn't heard from ORU or Roberts University. And ORU was getting ready to open its medical school that year. And I kept waiting. And I had the deadline to notify Creighton. I had to notify them by Friday. So I still hadn't heard that Friday of one the week. Monday, it comes up on the Monday of that week, and I hadn't heard from ORU. So I pick up the phone, I call the admissions office, and I say, I have another university that I have to notify by the end of this week, and I haven't heard from you. I get the call the next day. You've been accepted. So very quickly, I arrange a flight. I think it's the next day to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. (laughs) I know this has nothing to do with anything. How does arranging a flight work before the internet? Arranging a flight, you call, <laughs> you call the airlines. How do you pay? How do you pay? I don't think you paid until you got there. Unless you, <laughs> I'm trying to think if we paid when we got there. No, I think we had to pay with credit card over the phone. Oh, okay, so you had credit cards. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you had credit cards back then. See, I, I just don't know timelines of things. Yeah. So I think that's what you did. It's been so long, Nathan. It's, I'm trying to go back in there. But I, but I think that's what we did. We paid with the credit card over the phone. Sorry. So I make that trip to Tulsa, Oklahoma. But I was skeptical. Skeptical. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a charismatic. But I was skeptical on two points. Is God really in this place? And are the academics sound? School had just let out. So I had finished their spring semester, but there were still some students on campus getting ready for summer school. And it was Dr. Dwayne Thurman. He was the pre-med advisor. He met me, gave me a tour, linked me up with the student to talk with me and show me around. In fact, he had a few students that I met with. 
and talked with. But before the day was out, I was convinced in both counts, yes, indeed, God is in that place, and the academics are very sound. And so before I left Tulsa, I had made my decision. I'm going to ORU. I loved their philosophy, educating the whole man, spirit, mind, and body. And so I committed to ORU. Early August, I show up at ORU, and I'm now a student, back in school at the age of 23. I'm continuing my undergraduate education. So then what? Well, my first week there, now I have to go back to my story about the girlfriend that I had. It took me three years to mend my heart. I'd been very much in love. And my heart had just recently been mended. And I told myself when I went to ORU, I am not getting involved with any girls. I remember telling myself this very distinctly. Girls take your time, they take your money, and they take your heart. Time, forget it. I don't have any time. I got to study and get in medical school. Money, what money? I have no money. And heart, absolutely. I am not giving <laughs> my heart away. Then I met Sharon J. Cooper my first week at ORU, and she ruined my plans. And she's now been your wife for 40 years. She's now been my wife for 40 years. I asked her to marry me November, or was it October of that year? I think it was late October of that year. Of so you that met and married year. in how long? I'm sorry? You, how long before you met and married? That, that period so of- that was 78, and then we were married in 81. Okay. My parents met and married in three months. <laughs> no. We didn't get married until I could support a wife when okay. I had finished my undergraduate. But it took me three year, more years because ORU has a lot of general, unique general ed requirements. So I... I came out of school with a gazillion. About what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you just think those are dumb or like, do you think they're a good thing? I think some of them could be contracted. I, I do. I think some of them could be done now online and by a transferring student. You could knock those out and maybe they've changed it now. It's been so long, Nathan. Are you a pretty patient guy? In some ways, yes. In other ways, absolutely not. <laughs> Yeah, because that was my my thing with medical school. I, mean, I obviously never really considered it or looked at it. Uh, nobody ever was like, you should be a doctor. So I never once was like, oh, I'll be a doctor. Um, but the idea of how long you're there yes. just yes. seems like yes. a nightmare. It is long. And is there a certain point where you're there so long and even though you have so long to go, you're like, well, I've already put in this much time? You don't go into it. It's not for the faint-hearted. You go into it for the long haul. At Notre Dame, it seemed like half of the freshman class was pre-med. After the first semester, half of those had dropped out. (laughs) After the first year, another half had dropped off. Sophomore year, same thing. After the first semester, 
another half had dropped out. And again, after that second semester, another half were gone. So it's not for the faint-hearted. Undergrad, the classes you take, you get weeded out. And subsequently, you get weeded out. It just, there's the attrition. As an undergrad, a large rate of attrition takes place. So when you finally get to that point when you're applying to medical school, you've already had an incredible rate of attrition for those who are applying to medical school. And that, I went to ORU and two classes I was taking that first year as at ORU. I was taking organic chemistry and I was taking physics. So I went there knowing this is do or die. Yeah, This was going to br- uh, make me or break me because of those two classes. Organic chemistry is one of those classes that is one of those make or break classes universally as, an, as a pre-med student and, of course, physics. And I was taking both that year. Overachiever. And I remember very distinctly my organic chemistry professor. He's a small man, Indian, from India, the nation of India. And he walks in, and I'll never forget this because we're good friends to this day. Dr. George Xavier Thai Villakakat. He walks into the classroom dressed prim and proper. He always dressed so well. Slick back, dark black hair, black mustache. Good morning, class. My name is Dr. George Thai Villakakat. You may call me Dr. George. And he proceeds to write his name on the board. Organic chemistry is like the mutual attraction between a boy and a girl. He proceeded to draw a carbon molecule and then a chemical reaction. And I was mesmerized from that moment on. I loved organic chemistry. And I would go see Dr. George eh, once or twice a week to talk about a problem that I was having trying to, with the homework, trying to figure out. Because I was a very diligent student and, like I said, loved it. We would talk about that problem. In some cases, you say, oh, skip. I didn't expect anybody to get this problem. I just wanted you to work on it. And I was, <laughs> I'd already spent maybe an hour, two hours trying to figure out that one problem. Yeah. But we would spend more time sharing scripture or praying together and we became very good friends as time went on as i said we're good friends today he was my all-time favorite professor and then the physics i had a great physics professor so that year i did extremely well and but it took me three years so I tell people, I was so dumb <laughs> that I had to stay at ORU eight years to finish. 1973 to 1981 to get my undergraduate degree. So let's just regress a little bit here. My parents come for graduation. 
when we got, well, I need to digress a little bit more. So once I knew I was going to graduate, so that would have been 1980, looking to apply to medical school, and I only wanted to go to the Oral Roberts University School of Medicine. That's where I wanted to attend. But how am I going to pay for school? I didn't want to take out bank loans. No way. (laughs) I don't want to have that hanging over my head. I found out the military had scholarships to go to medical school. So different branches. I was attracted to the Army. I applied for what we call a health profession scholarship with the Army. So how does that work? For every year that they provided the scholarship, I applied for the four-year scholarship, you owe them a year in service after your residency. So I'm waiting to hear for about that. Meanwhile, I had applied for early admission to Oral University. And I remember the day that I got the admission, Sherry is running around, we're going to medical school. We're going to medical school. And I told her, honey, before all else is said and done, that's going to be the understatement of the year. We're waiting to hear about the scholarship. I get notification of the scholarship. So this is all in the spring then of 1981. So now I knew, okay, pay for medical school. We can afford... We can afford to get married. Well, I can afford, I should say, I can support a wife. And and we'll talk about that in a minute here. (laughs) And then we began to make our wedding plans in earnest because now I knew, okay, I'm graduating, going on to medical school. I got a means to pay for medical school. And now I can support a wife so we can go. So medical medical school, I thought was eight years. Is it four years? Medical school is four years. And then residency Residency is typically... Three years or more, depending okay. on the specialty you go in. In residency, you get semi-paid? You get semi-paid, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Pardon me. No problem. So, you go to... You get into med school. Army's going to pay for it. You'll have to go to the Army right after residency. So, there's four years in in med school. Four years in residency or three years? It was three and a half in my okay. case. So you, you graduate school in four, right? And mm-hmm. so that goes well. Mm-hmm. And then where do you go for residency? I ended up in Canton, Ohio. <laughs> now, I was going to – I had figured I was going into the Army. I had only – that's all I had done was apply to internships with the Army. It's now, okay, it's, we started July, so I think it was. What was your specialty in med school, by the way? Well, medical school, you don't have a specialty. Residency. Okay, what was your specialty in residency? Internal medicine. So I'm an adult medicine specialist. I don't know if you're familiar with internal medicine. Nope. So internist, as we're called, not to be confused with an intern. A first year <laughs> resident, <laughs> internist, we are adult medicine specialists. So everything from the common cold to the patient hooked up on life saving equipment. So from young adults 
to geriatric patients at the end of life. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on COVID? Do I have opinions on COVID? Yeah. Oh, we could get into that, sure. (laughs) 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 But that's the the bailiwick of the internist, particularly chronic diseases. If you think of chronic diseases of people, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, lung disease, arthritis. Can diabetes be reversed with diet? Diabetes can be reversed, well, diet, exercise, weight loss, at least type 2 diabetes in most people. Now, there are types of type 2 because it's a spectrum that you're still going to need some medicine. Some are still going to need insulin, for instance, and they're still type 2 diabetics. But there's a, diabetes is a spectrum of disease. And unfortunately, younger and younger and younger people are developing type 2 diabetes. It's just because of the insane amount of sugar that we well, eat. Well, hardly sugars, sedentary life, stress, yes, and obesity. Because the sugar, <laughs> excessive sugar, is the culprit. It's not fat. Yeah. It's sugar. <laughs> sugar is killing us. Yeah. Stress is killing us. Inactivity is killing us. But that's enough of that. So where were we? We were talking... Army, medical yep. school, where do you want to pick uh, up? I would, yeah, I would love to know. So you finish residency. What happens then? We finish residency and we go to our first duty station. I finished off cycle because I started residency as a transitional year resident. Oh, I know what I wanted to say, why I ended up doing a civilian or a civilian residency. I had applied for internships, military what's called a transitional year, meaning you, you take do rotations in a variety of specialties with the intent then of going on to physical medicine and rehabilitation. I get this Dear John letter just a, about six weeks before the closure. It would have been about six weeks before Christmas saying, Dear Lieutenant Mondragon, we are sorry to inform you, but you have not been selected for an Army internship. You will have to apply for a civilian internship, and then you will come on active duty. That year, it just so happened that there were more applicants, or there were more HPSP, Health Profession Scholarship Program, students, those of us who received the Army scholarships and that were finishing medical school, then they had slots for internship in the military. And I was one of those who didn't get an internship in the Army. So I'm left scrambling now to find a civilian slot. And the window is fast closing. And at that time, yeah, there's no like Google for you to be there, like just no, Google. No, no, no. It's, 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 go, it's go to the library again. Find the programs. This find so the numbers. Find this. Arrange the pro, uh, flights. Uh, it, uh, uh, but on the heels of this, our firstborn, Adam, he had been born in May, seven and a half weeks prematurely. And a few months later, was diagnosed with a rare, 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 exceedingly rare congenital anemia 
<clears throat> commonly called Black Van Diamond Syndrome. About 50 people in all of the U.S. have this type of anemia. What? So we're dealing with the premature... How did they even identify that's what it was if only 50 people in all the U.S. have had it? Well, you're seeing a hematologist, oncologist, and you know through the bone marrow there and the other tests that they did, they were able to diagnose that. So six and a half weeks in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, come home on a cardiac apnea monitor and other issues trying to feed him, prednisone and other medications that he's on because of the anemia, uh, all of these issues going on with our son. And so all of those things, the stress of, okay, I'm not getting this internship in the Army. I've got to find another internship. We're going to have to uh, go into the civilian sector to find that, all of that in this contracted time. So I'm scrambling to do that and then targeting cities. Where can I go target areas where they've got several programs that I can interview in several programs in metropolitan areas? Indianapolis, the Canton, Akron area ended up being another in Cleveland, Denver, some other areas. And the program that I ranked second was actually Canton. And that's where God wants to be. Turned out to be marvelous place. Just fabulous. So how does that go? How does that go? I get there <laughs> and I feel like I'm the dumbest intern. But the first night I'm on call, and I think that was the first night of residency after uh, – might have been July 1st, but if not July 1st, shortly after July 1st because July 1st is the official start date okay. of residency. Although we got there – you know, had to be there early and I think the week before we were taking a course, advanced cardiac life support and some other things. But July 1st is the official start date of residencies. I'm on call and I felt I – I was up all night. Didn't go to wake of sleep, so I had gone in about 6.30 that morning. We rounded, had morning report, worked throughout the day, up all night, worked through the next day. I'm coming home, I don't know, maybe 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock the next night. But I'm telling my, well, no, she's picking me up because we only had the one car. So maybe 6 6.30, I don't know. It was in the evening. But I'm telling her, honey, I learned more through that time than I probably learned in the last six months of medical school. <clears throat> it just so happened our program director for the transitional year and also for the internal medicine program was Dr. Andre J. Ognabin, retired brigadier general, so one-star general. He'd been former commander of Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. Not an Army guy, so just double-check. The most stars you can get is three. Is that correct? Four. Four. Okay. So, but he intimidated. Intimidated all of us. In fact, we had names for Dr. Ogden. The big O, Dr. O, 
or simply the O. When well, our chief resident say, Dr. O is coming. Got to have everything ready. And you had to have your ducks in a row when he was coming to morning, and he was there at morning report. And his expectation was when you presented a case, so in morning report you'd present the cases that came in during the course of the night, is that you wouldn't have your history and physical that you wrote up during the course of the night. He wanted you to present it from memory. And he said, <laughs> you could bring a little three-by-five card to write down the laboratory numbers or, or the, the labs that you ordered on the patient. You can, you can bring that. For, oh, wow, what there. a guy. But, what a guy. I want you to present from there. So he'd say, put away that. Present from, from memory. But I was so intimidated by this man the first matter of months when he's around. I felt like it was the parents, you know, the adults that you hear on Charlie Brown, the Charlie Brown movies when they're talking. I'd come home at night and I'd tell Sherry, he must think I'm the most idiotic intern he's ever seen. I can't seem to say one Intelligible. See, I can't believe how like around self confident you were, man. <laughs> I just feel like if I went to med school, I'd be the most confident human ever. Well, remember, it's ultra, it's ultra competitive. You know, you've got all these type A, alpha types that are. Would you feel that way? I mean, if you went to med school, wouldn't you walk in just like, oh man, I would. So, it's, man, that's a good this, thing. But this man intimidated me big time, and this was the case for. The first few months of internship, morning report, checkout rounds. So at the end of the workday when he would come and you'd pass off the patients to the on-call team. At lunchtime lectures, I just felt like an idiot. Or rounds when he was the attending physician and we'd have our rounds where we'd have our patients assigned to our team, and then we'd discuss those patients day by day. Oh, my gosh. But I was learning. I was growing, and I had had a great, some great uh, professors in medical school. I had a fa- superb foundation. I was dedicated, and I was working very, very hard. And so I was growing. Now, I had planned to go on physical medicine and rehabilitation. That was the specialty I was going to pursue. But I began to have misgivings. I had done a, a rotation with physical medicine and rehabilitation at Walter Reed Army Medical Center towards the end of my senior year in medical school. And they were so heavily weighted towards electrodiagnostics. And what electrodiagnostics is, is electromyography and I don't even know what these words mean. Okay, so <laughs> so what it is, is is you're measuring muscle activity and nerve velocities. So just look for, do that. So, so looking for problems with muscle disease, looking for muscle disease and also looking for injuries of nerves. And I thought, this doesn't turn me on. I love working with people that have had injuries like or stroke victims and that type of thing with the true rehab, but sticking needles into patients and measuring velocities and calculating this. And I thought, that's just boring to spend so much of my day doing that. I thought, ah, that's, that was just a turnoff. 
during the rotation, but when we worked on the things true rehab, man, that lit me up. But I realized in the Army, a lot of it was these electrodiagnostic studies. So I had already had some misgivings there. But my first three months as a resident were, my first two months were on the general medicine wards. And my third month was in the medical ICU. And I began to fall in love with internal medicine. And I remember having that dilemma. We had some excellent role models in internal medicine, but we also had some specialists who were subspecialists of internal medicine, nephrologists in particular, who his lifestyle and his demeanor, my wife and I had been turned off, and she said, promise me you'll never be an internist. Promise me. And I remember laying in one bed, laying in night in bed one night, and I'm talking to her about, I'm really liking internal medicine, honey. But she had, had told me just a while back, promise me you'll never go into internal medicine. And I'm telling her, honey, I can't promise you that. So I had this dilemma. I was planning PM&R, physical medicine rehabilitation. I'm falling in love with internal medicine, but I didn't know if I could be a good internist, good internal medicine physician. So I make an appointment to go see Dr. Dr. O, Dr. Agni, the big O, the EO. So I'm more confident this time and relaxing around him. So I remember going to his office. And when he'd come to morning report, let me just back up a minute. He had this look that would pierce through you. He had this way of doing that, just looking so intently at you. And then if he had a question, he kind of dropped his glasses. <laughs> Sounds like a joyful guy. Oh, he's a, well, he's a great guy because we're good friends. <laughs> I have been now for a number of years with my wife and I, with his wife also. But I went to see him. And he greets me so, so um, kindly. Oh, Skip, come on in. Come on in. What can I... Have a seat. How may I help you? Dr. O, I want to ask you something. I don't know if I said that. I, don't, I think I just jumped right into the conversation. Dr. O, I think I want to go into internal medicine. But I don't know if I could be a good internist. He looks at me intently and he says skip i think you could be a good internist in fact i think you could be a very good internist we'd love to keep you in the program i could write letters of deferment to the army so you could graduate from our program what do you think i'm inside and what do I think? Why? Dr. O believes in me. I'm thinking, yes, sir. I would like that, is what I told him. And I went home and told Sherry. Dr. O thinks. And how old are you at this point? How old? Okay, we started medical school. So I was 23, 26, 31. So I'd have been 31. How many kids? 30. 
So at that time, we just had Adam. The next year, Chris would have born, would be born. Yeah, so Chris was in our second year of medical school, and then Angelie in our last year of medical school. Three kids and still medical school. <laughs> well, no, one in medical school, so and two in residency. Okay, that's, yeah, that's what I meant. But still, before your doctor, three kids. Yeah, before I may. And before you before make go to the military. Before I'm in the military. So I'm a doctor when I graduate, but I'm not practicing okay. independently. So I stay and do internal medicine. So we switch at the end of the year. So I finished my transitional year, but I only got credit for six months towards internal medicine. So I'm graduating off cycle at the end of December 88 instead of June 88. And that's what put me off cycle. But Dr. O, the most amazing bedside clinician and the most amazing medical academician that I've ever personally been involved with. So you graduate? So I graduate. And you go straight to the Army? How does this work? Straight to the Army. What do you do there? What do I do there? We arrive at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, Lawton, Oklahoma. It was a dreary day, January 3rd, 1989. Another overcast gray day, cold, I remember, bitter day. Small town? Yeah, it's a small city. Yeah, very small. Although I think it's, what, the third largest city in, in, <laughs> in, Oklahoma. in, in Oklahoma, but it's not that big. We we get there. We only, I only know two people, uh, Lee Southmade and his wife. <clears throat> Lee was my sponsor. <clears throat> Pardon me. Get there. I had gone earlier, rented a house for us. So we get there, our goods arrive, they're moving us in. And so that first several days we're getting settled in. I had gone and had to sign in at the <clears throat> at the hospital. And I should have had, I think it was ten days, ten days, fourteen days, somewhere in there, but within a matter of days. The chief of the Department of Medicine is saying, Skip, they need you and we need you. I'd like you to come to work. Only in many years retrospect, I realized I could have said, no, sir. I have this time to get my family settled. It's kind of like if you get pulled over and they ask if they insert your car. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, you can say, no, you <laughs> yeah. don't have that right. Yeah. Uh, but what you don't know is what you don't know. And so I didn't realize I could have said, no, sir. I have this permissive leave to get my family settled. I need to get them settled. And it was it was a difficult transition. My wife, for a matter of weeks, maybe the first few months, would say, I think it was the first matter of months, honey, I want to go home. Honey, I want to go home. And I'd have to tell her, sweetie, this is our home. Because I would go to work. Work for me is work. You know, taking care of patients, taking care of patients. Certainly a different environment, learning about the Army. And it was a learning curve in terms of the Army You only take care of Army patients? No. I would take care of Army patients and Army dependents. Okay. So I was taking care of both. And all active duty? So active duty, I think there might have been some reservists, but almost exclusively active duty. And then there were their uh, adult dependents. And if they had adult children, then adult children – uh, and then there were retirees in there 
dependents if they were adult age. So, okay. Now, <clears throat> that's January. By May time frame, I find out my two senior colleagues are leaving the Army, or, or rather leaving Fort Sill. One is leaving the Army abruptly to go do a nephrology specialist in kidney disease in the civilian sector. That was Lee Southmade. My other colleague was going on to a fellowship in infectious disease. So he's gone. I've heard that word more than I ever thought I would hear it the past year. <laughs> <laughs> he's going on. He, he leaves by early, I don't know, late May, early June at the latest. Lee Southmade is gone again by early June. At the, and they turn to me and say, Skip, you are now chief of the internal medicine clinic, medical director of the ICU. You will be our only Fort Sill-based internist. Welcome to the Army. It was Six months in. Less than six. Yeah, it was six yeah. months in. It was the worst summer <laughs> ever. I mean – ever that i've ever spent in the army it so, was it i'm was sure work horrible. was slammed right oh it was it and was, then you go home and you have three kids that are all under the age of four so we got there when we arrived at fort sill adam was four chris was two and angelie was four months old Man. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a horrendous summer. Oh my gosh. And, and, and you really boarded that door shut when you were talking about when you got married. <laughs> it, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible summer. Now, do you both recognize this is horrible and this has got to make a shift or we're, or this can't happen? Like, you know, well, what, what's kind of the just, conversation? We just happening? realized it had to, it had to happen, but I was so irritable and would snap, you know, sleep deprived and irritable. And that summer, I was getting ready to take my medical boards for internal medicine. And I took those in August. Are you having a study for those? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, that's crazy. <laughs> At least trying to study for those. And I did extremely well. I mean, I did exceptionally well on those. And yet I realized in retrospect, if I had taken them right out of residency, I would have blown the top off of those. But even then, I did extremely well. But it was a horrible, and I had to tell non-active duty patients, you're going to have to go see the, somebody in the civilian sector this summer because we can't accommodate you mm. be able to see active duty patients this summer. And that was painful. Oh, my gosh, that was painful to have to tell these patients that. That was, that was hard. And then as the patients are coming back later that year, you realize – the quality of care they received was not up to snuff in many you realize the quality of care that we gave was vastly superior you could just see it in reading the charts like geez, and do yes. you ever would you ever find yourself wanting to call one of these people's doctors and just be like what were you thinking or why did you you know like did you ever find yourself <laughs> like how did i don't know how this works and you know in business like we can call anybody out there's no replications there's well, no nothing you you would feel like that you think you many times I'd be thinking, what were they thinking? Are you kidding me? Look at this note. I can't believe it's got three lines, and you can't read them. <laughs> can't read them, or is that all they did for this patient? They they, they don't explain things. It's boop, boop, boop. 
I was appalled. I was appalled in many cases. So it taught me something very distinctly at an early time that army medicine is superb medicine. And I already knew we gave great care, but now I had a comparison, a firsthand comparison, and hands down I understood <laughs> our care. In most cases, at what I saw, the examples that I saw, beat the care that was rendered in the civilian sector. Now, we had some advantages. Ours was a closed system. I didn't have to worry about people being able to afford medicine, see a subspecialist, get special tests, and so forth. And I wasn't having to see patients in 10, 8 to 10-minute intervals. And was your pay way less oh, being yeah. there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, I started off as a captain in pay. I got some bonuses, but as a captain. But each year, my pay incrementally went up with those years. But early on, yeah, it would have been substantially lower than my civilian counterparts. Absolutely. Like 50, 60% or? Oh, yeah, easy, easy. <laughs> All right, so you're doing that. How long are you there for? We're at Fort Seal from, arrived there in 89 and we left in 92. But I was deployed the first time to Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm during that time. Cool. How'd that go? It was tense to start with. We get the call in August, early August the of 90, because Saddam was rattling his sword. <clears throat> there had invaded Kuwait, and George Herbert Walker Bush had told them, you know, don't do this. And then he told them, all right, you have crossed the line. You've gone in and invaded Kuwait. We're now going to take steps against this. So I was activated with the 47 Field Hospital out of Fort Sill that was based at Fort Sill. So they took almost all of the professional staff. We were what was called PROFIS. So assigned to that unit that if it got deployed, we would go with it. So overnight, boom, we are now training with the 47 Field Hospital, preparing to go to Kuwait, and they had to start bringing in a backfill from reserve reservist to backfill at Fort Sill at Reynolds Army Community Hospital. So it was tense because we knew that Saddam had used chemical weapons on his own people, and that was a big part of our training was – using our so-called mop suits, the masks, and the other garments to protect us. And this isn't a blazing time of summer. <laughs> you know, August there. In yeah, Fort- what's August in, in Kuwait? August. Oh, well, we were doing the training oh, okay. first Sorry. at Fort Sill and then later at Kuwait. But, you know, at, at Fort Sill, you know, that's in the high 90s, you know. And, oh, they pushing hundreds. And, I mean, it's horribly hot you know and then in kuwait you know you're pushing temperatures 110 yeah <laughs> and, and in kuwait because it's an island there you know the humidity is oh high no too. so you add that to it yeah so that's going on because i played golf in uh arizona in like 105 degree weather but it's dry as a ball. yeah it was totally fine yeah yeah it's a lot different 
right. Um, I'm going to ask some some history. I'm going to get a history please, lesson please. real quick. So didn't we kill Saddam Hussein in the 2000s? Yeah. So we invaded them twice? Well, remember, we went there to destroy and kick them out of Kuwait. Okay. So, you- so and at that time, there were proponents that, were advocating that President Bush should continue on into Iraq and decimate further and take, you know, all the way to Baghdad. But he said his mandate and what he had received through the UN Council was to kick them out of Kuwait. And so he did not proceed on into Iraq. And did we win that? Did we oh my gosh, we we did. Because initially, see, part of that tension was because we were the first major medical unit <clears throat> in theater. And there were <clears throat> estimates that there could be hundreds of thousands of casualties if there was a massive ground assault. <clears throat> Pardon me. Thankfully, there was not. Instead, there was this massive aerial attack. You know, the, the, the bombs over and over and just decimated Saddam's troops that had invaded tanks and artillery and troops just decimated them. And so what was left, they withdrew. And so it didn't require a massive ground assault to kick them out. So after what type of, of patients were you working with? Well, we had relatively few patients as a result. <laughs> we ended up mostly having sick call for our patients. We did have some tragic things. Remember, a patient came in, and unfortunately this soldier from we what we pieced together had received a Dear John letter from his fiancée, and he shot himself in the head. I remember them bringing him in, quickly putting him, you know, the electrodes for the cardiac machine on him to monitor that, intubating him, put the tube down his throat, and starting IVs and transfusions, rush, you know, well... Before that, rushing him to the CT scanner and then the surgeons rushing him to the operating room. So are y'all having to fly CT scanners in there? They had them in. Well, yeah, they brought them in. (laughs) They brought them into theater. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, on the big airport. How how long is the flight from your base to Kuwait? That's about a 16-plus-hour flight. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's a long flight. Oh, my gosh. And I don't sleep. Well, on a, I mean, I, yeah. I, I can't How, hardly sleep. I can't if, fall asleep on. Is a, it just an plane. open plane? Everybody's just laying down in it, or are there seats? Like I don't know how. I don't know how this works. I'm trying to remember if we went commercial that were chartered, or if it was a big Air Force plane. I think it was a big Air Force plane at that time. Those don't have seats in them, right? They're just open carriers or? Yeah, they have web seats. Okay. So they're not the most comfortable, <laughs> if I remember correctly. 
Whereas next time I went to, when I went to Iraq, they, they chartered, um, um, commercial flights. Okay. But that, uh, that was tragic. And then, you know, you see other, uh, assorted minor injuries, but mostly sick call because we didn't have that massive ground attack, thankfully. And then things, and how long were you there? Seven and a half months. Okay. And was the war pretty much over at the end of that seven and a half yeah, months? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even before that, you know, we had the last few months where we could actually even go into Kuwait City and buy things, see things, do things. So it was actually, you know, rather safe to do it at that point. But those first matter of months, several months, you know, the sirens could go off and you'd be putting on this mop gear and waiting for the sirens to go up because you you knew you were well within range of scud missiles from from Iraq and Saddam's troops. So seven months there, you come back, then what? Come back, then we're at, again, at reynolds Alm Community Hospital, Fort Sill. Then in 92, we leave and go to Walter Reed Army Medical Center where I'm doing a fellowship in general medicine. So is that academic. the most famous? That's the most famous of Army Medical Centers, yes. <laughs> yeah. When Trump got COVID, I just remember hearing Walter Reed over and, and over and over again. Right. And that's the new Walter Reed. It was then the historic Walter Reed where okay. I was at. And then I was also doing my master's in public health at the Uniformed Services University. <laughs> So, and how many kids did you have at the time? That time we had four. So Jonathan was born our last, right after, 11 days after I got back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Wait, wait, you were in Kuwait while your wife was pregnant. Oh, yes. She was. So she, was she very happy with that? Did she love that you were gone, that her entire pregnancy? No. <laughs> of course not. You're corralling three young kids. And she's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but so, she was, we were both very grateful because we didn't know. There was no end date in sight. People would tell them, of course they're going to send your husband home. Of course. And she's thinking, do you realize how many soldiers are in theater and how many women are pregnant? <laughs> Of course, they're not going to just send my husband home if I'm delivering this child. And normally what happens is we'll think about a name or names and then decide on that name. Or I say, yeah, that's the one we're going to go with, honey, right before or close proximity of the birth. But she said, honey, we can't do it this time like that. You're going to have to choose the name before you go. And I've always had this sense of the gender of our children. It's like, it's going to be a boy. It's going to be a boy. <laughs> it's going to be our daughter. It's going to be a boy. And so we chose Jonathan Grant for our fourth child. And Jonathan was born, as I said, 11 days after that. Wow. Man. Four kids when we arrived at Walter Reed. <laughs> and the oldest was seven? So this would have been 92, so um, eight. Eight, <laughs> eight six, <laughs> four. <laughs> and Jonathan would have wow. been a baby. Uh, what size house do you have to move into? Is everybody sharing rooms? Is that? <laughs> Let's see. I think we had a... We, we, 
rented a house in Silver Spring, Maryland, and I believe it was a four-bedroom house, if memory serves me right. It's kind of there. So the master bedroom, Chris and Adam would have shared a room. Angela would have had a room, and I think the baby would have had a room. It's kind of, uh, I'm the youngest of four, so that was kind of our setup. <laughs> yeah. Um, my oldest brother had a room. My sister had a room. Um, and then my, my, me, my, the young, so me and then my middle brother shared a room. Um, and, uh, you know, they explained that because she's the only girl, she gets her own room. Everybody's like, saying, why does she get yeah. her own room? Why does she get <laughs> yeah. Cause she's a girl. <laughs> uh, did, uh, did your kids have to buy their first cars? We helped them. We actually... I think bought them for them because my uh, everybody had to buy our own first cars in my family except my nice. sister, <laughs> and so <laughs> that's the so girl. there's still this yeah it's like not only did she get a room she also got her first she car her first car <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> um, okay so man I can't believe the craziness of your life so on top of all of this you decide to get another degree right <laughs> where does that come from. The General Medicine Fellowship is to help you with research and to become an academician, a teacher. And I knew I was interested in teaching. Not so much in the research, but more so in the teaching. And that's what the fellowship was revolved around. And with that, you could get your, typically you got your MPH. And I loved the coursework at the Uniform Services University in Bethesda, Maryland. It was awesome. Great university. I tell people one of the best-kept secrets in all of Department of Defense is Uniform Services University. Cool. So I get my MPH. We finish my fellowship. Angeli, or rather Joey, is born six months before we graduate. Or six months before we leave, about five months before I graduate. Child number five. Child number five. And oldest is how old at this point? So Adam would have been going on 10. So Adam was nine and a half when <laughs> Joey was born. <laughs> and it was funny. So when all the kids were coming to visit. Did you have I a brought, nanny? Oh, no. <laughs> I, brought all, I brought the four older kids to see their baby brother. And... And brought him into Sherry's room, and all these nurses and others are kind of crowding at the doorway. They look, what does this what does this family with five kids look like? You know, they're all kind of crowding. <laughs> I remember, look, uh, we were an anomaly in the D.C. area, very much so, because there's so many dinks, double income, no kids, and families, one or two kids at best, and people that go to work. You you wouldn't see. We lived on this neighborhood. We knew there were people that lived there, but they go to work. You wouldn't see them leave. They'd come home, and you wouldn't see them. And you knew they were there, but their kids, only we got to know a few families there on the block, and our kids would play with them. But it was weird. We are an anomaly with five kids, very much, and that my wife did work. And when we'd go out, oh my gosh, 
You got all these looks. <laughs> you can imagine us on the Metro. You've been to DC. Yeah. Have you? Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. I haven't read the Metro. Yeah. And we go out, go to places. And you just kind of see people <laughs> <laughs> looking at us and counting. Now, did everybody, so this is, uh, you know, I don't think I have a big family because I knew a bunch of people with like eight kids or more. So, uh, not in our neighborhood, but you know, I mean, there's like four doesn't seem insane to me. Um, my wife and I, we think that we want to have, you know, several kids. Good. Um, so it doesn't seem insane, but I've, uh, it's, it's <laughs> there's to some people four is just an insane amount of kids. Sure. I think it's funny. It's like four, you know, but of course I think five's a lot, you know, so maybe it's just all about your upbringing. But, uh, my favorite is they always assume that it's some religious reason. <laughs> Do you get this? Oh, so you must be Mormon. Like that's the number one. <laughs> oh, you want she is. Oh, you must be Mormon. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You got that all the time, or or the jokes. Oh, I figured out where they came from. And it's like Sherry <laughs> would say sometimes. I I feel like saying to telling him no, but uh, we sure had fun trying to figure that out, or something to that effect. <laughs> no, we were very prayerful about each of our children, and when we wanted them to be conceived. We are always very, very prayerful about that. Now, before we were married, I told Sherry, honey, I'll take as many children as you'll give me, and I will happily raise them. Because I wanted a large family. I grew up in a large family. I loved growing up in a large family. Sherry has two older siblings, her brother is seven years older. Her sister is 11 years older. So in many respects, she's almost like a only child. only child. So her life and upbringing were very different. Her family's very reserved. Mine is very loud. Mine is very affectionate. Huggy, huggy, kissy, kissy. <laughs> Hers is anything but that. <laughs> that's, that's my... Uh... The longest phone call I've had with my dad in five years is maybe two minutes. Mm. Just straight to the point. Um, not a family of hugging. You know, there's there's very few signs of affection. My wife, same background, which is great because we both have decided, like, that's not what we want in our mm-hmm. family. Sure. Um, well, you're breaking but- the mold because you're <laughs> saying we want something different for our relationship. We want something different for our family. We want our kids to experience something different. So I lodged you for that. Yeah, for us, we want community. Um, so we both grew up in families that didn't really have that. I think oh, hers wow. had it more than mine. Uh, it's so strange. I, you know, typically you have a big family, communities that's spetted, and I was homeschooled, so that's really it's spetted. So are our kids? Um, you know, there's always a day like, oh, you have a big homeschooled family, like you'll love Jesus and you'll love hanging out with each other, and it's like I just, <laughs> this is so crazy. Uh, he's kind of off the grid, so that I'll give that warning ahead of time. But mm-hmm. I just saved my brother's phone to my number last week. Wow! Like I, I just never talk to him, and I occasionally see him when I'm in town. Um, my sister, she found out that uh, my wife was pregnant via social media. <laughs> like, oh my word! We just grew up in a family that didn't have community. It's not mm-hmm. that we hate each other, they right. and so just the way you were uh, raised. And there's no way of you know people are like, oh, we well, can build that now. It's like it's really hard mm-hmm. to build it when it when it's do not they, from the start. Do they share yeah. your faith? Uh, is everybody a believer? Is that the question? <sighs> uh, my sister is. Um, my brother 
my oldest brother, um, he thinks all Christians are dumb. And so like his, he just wants to argue. So everything is about like how he can pin somebody. Yes, um, yes, and yes. so he knows scripture. I would actually say pretty well, um, which is a good thing. Um, at the end of the day, he got stage for Hopkins lymphoma, lymphoma, Hodgkin's and lymphoma, lymphoma, okay. uh, at age 12 mm. and beat mm. it and then had four kids after. Wow. Um, so I think that's straight from God right there. Um, so I think there is miracles that have occurred in his life that he can't dispute. Um, he's got a real pride, uh, pride issue. Uh, and so that's why, you know, all this kind of just sense our pride issue. Uh, and then below him, I don't really know. Um, and then my sister's definitely a believer. Um, so yeah, that's, I'll, I'll pray but, for you, brother. But we, uh, we just have a different, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a, when you grow up without community, it just means that you don't talk about things. You don't hang out, you don't talk yeah. about things. And so it's always so weird talking about them later. Yes. Um, and especially how people communicate <laughs> because it's like, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like I feel like it's much easier for me to share the gospel with somebody I don't know than my own family. <laughs> oh, it's always hard. It's always hard. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, everybody. We grew up in a Christian household. Everybody knows. Uh, everybody knows the gospels. I would say for the most part. Um, and it's just that we have different. Uh, I think we just have different ways of approaching that. Um, and you know, essentially everything I bring up to my sister is just is taken as me being overly aggressive or, mm. or aggression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's nothing, it's like, okay. Cause I just look at things as super, uh, have you ever seen the Francis Chan rope analogy? Mm. So he's got this rope that goes like, a, you know, just imagine going around the world a few times okay. and it goes for eternity. And then, uh, this little part of the rope, we'll just call it this part mm-hmm. right here. This goes on for eternity. This is our time on earth. Okay. <laughs> and he's like, so people think, all right, I'm going to work really hard for this period so that I can really live my life right mm. here. And he's like, but nobody ever thinks about this part right all here. Yeah. Um, so I look at everything as super almost urgent. And that's, you know, I'm a, I'm a type A, I'm a serial entrepreneur. It's just my, you know, I, we, we took rabbit. I did a live in 115 days. We raised a million dollars in seven days. You know, I'm just all just floor pedal to the floor at all times, you know? And so, and I, and I approach really just kind of everything that way. And so my sister is like, uh, I call her super lazy. Um, my wife gets mad at me. So does my family. So I'm trying to think my my sister's just much more relaxed and chill than I am. She's not driven like you are. So when we even talk about, you know, uh, the gospel and stuff, it's just that I look at this as like super, like go and make disciples of all nations as a command. And it's like a pretty serious one. And, I look at these, uh, you know, let's say like, uh, take care of the least of these. Let's mm. just take, let's just grab something like that. And, and I hate when you meet people that say like, Oh, that's cool that you feel called to do that. And it's like, no, this is like what scripture calls us to do. This isn't like a, my heart, you know, like my heart personally wants to solve the water issue. That's what I'm a big, big thing in is like building wells. Cause like that is a solvable problem. It solves a bunch of other diseases. Yes, it does. Once Absolutely. you solve that, you solve a bunch of other things. And you know, Bill Gates wants to vaccinate the world, whatever. I want to fresh water just seems to be a much better solution and, before we get to vaccinations, but I don't know any, I'm not a doctor. Maybe, you know, a little more. Uh, I just love that when like Joe Rogan says something about health, people freak out. But when Bill Gates says something about health, they don't when they're both 
non-medical experts. And so that's always super interesting to me. But all that to say, my, my sister and I, we just, we just approach things very differently. And I, I approach things much more on the urgency side. But it's mm-hmm. because of my personality. Maybe she's more urgent than than I think. And we just haven't gotten to that level. But Okay, so in the military, you're a doctor. You're continuing to advance your career. You didn't just like give up. You're you're doing it all. You got five kids. You, got, <laughs> I mean, you're doing it all. What's how long are you in DC for? Two years. Okay. Oh, okay. So very short stint, and then where? Brook Army Medical Center, San Antonio, Texas. Okay. Our favorite duty station. I I've had a lunch buddy. And, you know, I didn't go, I was homeschooled and didn't go to college. So I didn't really know how things worked. And something I was really shocked by was the food that he was fed. Mm. Um, it was just, one, it looked disgusting. But two, it was like name brands. And you could tell, like, you know, they're giving him Doritos. They're giving just all these things. It's like a seven-year-old's, a seven-year-old kid could do better in school if he was eating better food. I was Absolutely. thinking, like, if he was not in... And so that really just concerns me when I when I saw that. But another thing that's interesting is I remember, uh, keep in mind, I was four years old when my brother got cancer, but I remember there being a McDonald's at the hospital, like built into the hospital. And then and now recent years as I've gone to hospitals, I've seen fast food chains, like a food court with fast food chains inside of the hospital. Do you have a personal problem with that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and how do we fix it? We are seeing changes happen, Nathan, in terms of that. How would I change that? I think first and foremost, we have to emphasize to people that lifestyle does matter, that food is medicine, that exercise is medicine, that sleep is essential, that these three I call them the big three, and I write about them in my book, how important they are. They are foundational. That the food we eat determines our microbiome, and our microbiome dictates a lot of things from our gut. Certain neurochemicals, such as serotonin, not over 90% of our serotonin is not produced by our brain, but rather by our gut. Our gut communicates with the vagus nerve to our brain. So what we're putting in our gut is either helping us or harming us, creating inflammation or Diminishing inflammation. Food matters. We were talking about it earlier off camera that it's not fat that's making us fat. It's sugar that's making it fat. When I was a kid, you'd go to places and a you'd get a Coke or some other soda and it would be a 12-ounce serving. Now you go into a place, 32, <laughs> 44. In some cases, it's the mega, 56 ounce. Have you ever ordered a small drink from Wendy's? 
I haven't ordered a drink from <laughs> Wendy's in a gazillion years. So I don't know so, what that is. I think it's Wendy's. I don't know if you've gone, but I got a small drink there and I swear it's this big. I'm a big water guy. Um, and occasionally I like a root beer. Um, oh, root beer. And oh. I, uh, I don't drink alcohol. Um, and not for health reasons. I just don't do things I don't enjoy. And so there you go. Uh, there's that. But, uh, I do eat very unhealthy foods and, uh, a rule I've been trying to implement is that like less fast food and I can eat unhealthy food if I make it myself from scratch because then it's a lot more work. And then, you know, so <laughs> then, it, then there ends up being a lot less of it. So tell me about your book. My book, Wrestling Depression is Not for Wimps. I wrote this book for men. As I was recovering from depression, I suffered depression my last year in the Army. And it came about... To give you the backstory on this, I was about six weeks into my recovery and still really struggling. I was seeing my therapist. I don't think I had seen my primary care physician or maybe about that time I had and started my antidepressant. I can't quite remember the time frame in that. It's a little fuzzy, but I was still really struggling. And during those nine months as I was descending into that dark pit and here those weeks into my recovery, my prayers were, Lord, Lord, please, please deliver me from this darkness. I get this call from my youngest brother, Chris, and I call Chris my alter ego. Chris calls me very excitedly. He had been at a Bible study in Raleigh, North Carolina with Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham. Franklin had spoken to these men about suffering, the suffering of Jesus Christ, particularly the brutal suffering on the cross. And that if Christ suffered so horrendously for us, why especially as Western Christians, do we think we should not have to suffer? That caught me up short. And it brought back to my mind Philippians 3.10, a scripture I was familiar with, a scripture I had prayed hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of times, in my walk with Christ. And Paul writes, Oh, that I might know him, referring to Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. Over the next two days, as I pondered that scripture, my prayer shifted. From Lord, Lord, please deliver me. To Lord, what would you have me learn from this? And how might I use it to help others? And I understood that if I needed to live with this suffering, I could. That there was something redemptive in this and that God could use it. And I understood at that point that I needed to tell my story. 
that I was compelled to tell my story. So I began to write down the lessons I had learned and the lessons I was learning in my recovery with the intent of sharing my story. Before I went on terminal leave, I should say now it's called transitional leave with the Army, I'd asked our commander at Eisenhower Army Medical Center if I could share my story with the hospital staff. And he gave me that opportunity at what we call an officer professional development day. So morning and afternoon sessions in the hospital auditorium for with the staff at large, I got to share my story and lessons learned. With the intent of encouraging others, if you're struggling, go get help. And the lessons I learned in recovery, but also what led me down that dark path and preventive things they could do. I was a colonel, a senior colonel at that, well-known in the hospital, chief of the Department of Medicine, I'm a national wrestling champion, been deployed 37 months, 30 months in combat zones. I had a powerful platform from which to speak. So here I am standing up and telling this group of soldiers, civilians, retired soldiers, my superiors and subordinates, this is what happened to me. Out of that also came the opportunity to do three public service announcements with the Department of the Army, talking about suicide prevention, mental health, and telling a little bit about my story again. But that became the genesis for my book. Wrestling, depression, is not for wimps. So I wrote it in layman's terms. I wrote it in short, easy-to-read chapters. And I wrote it chock full of practical tips for men to help them in their recovery from depression and to maintain their health and wellness. And those tips that can be put into practice today. The title, Wrestling Depression is Not for Wimps, is taken from my own experience. I've been involved with wrestling since I was 13 years old. It's been a lifelong passion. And the life lessons I learned from wrestling and how that applies to recovering from depression and how anecdotes from my own experience with wrestling and how that applies to recovering from have you done uh, any martial arts i have not done martial arts i tried a little bit of judo (laughs) practicing so i did play some judo and uh, i actually got uh, suffered an injury doing Uh. that (laughs) it was an overtraining issue however that because of my pride and ego that ended up (laughs) yeah doing that you know, in, in martial arts, there's kind of uh, people that are really good at grappling and then people that are really good at striking. Yeah. And obviously your wrestling background, I would think, would make you a very good grappler. 
I'm sure it would. <laughs> Wrestlers, if we can get you on the ground, then you are at our mercy typically. <clears throat> yeah. When did you release the book? It was released in February of 2020. Wow. What a great time to release a book. <laughs> I'm sure your book tour went great. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> My launch party, everything. <laughs> what are your thoughts on COVID? My thoughts on COVID. I want to go straight into the, the CDC's reaction to this. Dr. Fauci. Okay. Um, face mask. Um, spread of the virus. States opening back up. States staying closed. Six feet apart. Um, sh- national shutdown, but allowing essential businesses, which pretty much was every business. It's up hairdressers. You know, it's like like most were considered essential. You're just your general thoughts on the virus and then how it was handled. Or, or and do you think it came from a lab, or do you think it was from a bat? That remains to be seen. I don't know, to be honest. There's, I think there's things we don't know. There's controversy there. Did it come from that lab in China? And is that where this started? Certainly, you can't get straight answers out of China. And you can't trust necessarily what you hear from China. So, I'll preface it with that. I don't know. How was it handled? I think the response was too slow, and unfortunately that was due to the hubris, the pride and ego, and the way our former president sees things. I love the man and some of the things that he did for us, but his pride gets him in trouble. And so the response was too slow, and we should have taken action sooner. Is and what would that action would have been? <clears throat> I think that action would have been to begin to say we, we need to put some restrictions on, especially in major metropolitan areas. But it couldn't have been – it shouldn't have been a all-or-nothing approach because once we had di- tests to – um, survey the prevalence of the disease. In my mind, what should have happened is how you approach the disease was how prevalent is the disease in certain areas. And if you are above a certain threshold, you need to take these precautions. You should not be in mass groups and so forth. Yes, I, I think the, the using the masks and so forth early on were warranted and where uh, you just saw this massive proliferation. Again, you saw those largely, what, in New York, in California, where you saw those predominant areas, in the major metropolitan areas where the disease just exploded and then moved throughout the country. Of course, the first earliest cases were up in Seattle also. So those things... I think the response was too slow because it was poo-pooed and didn't understand the ramifications. But it wasn't an all-or-nothing approach that needed to be taken because you had areas where 
the prevalence was so low, I think you didn't need massive shutdowns either. Now I think we're, we're seeing that they're understanding. Okay, we know more about the virus. If you are fully vaccinated, okay. You need masks. You can do some things. You can gather. Uh, and so I think there's more rationality to it because we've learned more about the virus before. It was like, oh, it may exist on surfaces. Oh, my God, don't touch surfaces. Clean everything. I saw people going around with masks and face shields and gloves and, oh, oh my gosh. Did you realize people walking around with gloves, all the things they touch and accumulate and contaminate just by virtue of walking around? But I saw people so paranoid. I mean, I was like, I don't know that I want to go. I didn't go out for a good while, for a matter of weeks, unless I had to go someplace essential. Because I figured I'm not going out and exposing myself. I'm a healthy 60, at that time, 64-year-old man. I'm saying, I'm not going out. I don't need to go out. I go for my walks. If we need to get groceries or something's essential to go out for, okay, fine. But otherwise, I don't need to go mix with the crowds. That was my approach. I'm just, you know, I'm not thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm necessarily going to die from this thing, but I don't need to take chances. That was my approach to it. There was a lot of people that were saying, this is conspiracy and blah, blah, blah. And I thought initially, well, is this conspiracy? Are they uh, telling us this is as bad as it was? And initially, I was leaning towards that. But then as we could learn more and more about the virus and the severity and what was going on with it, it was like, well, we do need to take precautions. But there needed to be rationality to it again, that it's not an all-or-nothing approach. Did you ever get frustrated that for some reason a tire shop or Walmart or whatever would be considered essential, but a gym wasn't considered essential? Absolutely. When I, and I never heard anybody in the mainstream media, the CDC, or anybody mention uh, that – the ability to work out and strengthen your immune system is a positive thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Like oh, is, yeah, it was frustrating. What they considered essential business, liquor stores, <laughs> pot stores, <clears throat> some of these places. But, oh, no, not a gym. Yeah. It's like, where is the rationale to this? And then where do your thoughts lie on personal responsibility in the sense of that if you're scared – Stay home. If you're not scared, live your life. I think it goes two ways. And let me tell you how I see it. <clears throat> I'm fully vaccinated. Okay, I got the Pfizer vaccination, both <clears throat> both two shots. Okay, and This was a matter of going on a couple months now. And I feel much more secure now and so forth. But like I said, I'm a healthy, very healthy. I don't have any cardiopulmonary disease, diabetes. I don't have any of these type of diseases. I work out. I eat healthy. (laughs) I have healthy relationships. So I'm doing things to take care of myself. Yet, um, so you you were, what were you asking again? lost track um, the, the like 
Oh, our approach. Yeah, my my question is is like, I I very much believe in personal responsibility. Okay, responsibility. Yes. <clears throat> I tell people, I'm a physician. I'm a Christian. And I felt it was incumbent upon me, number one, to protect myself, to be immunized, not just for myself, but for my family, so my wife, my kids, my grandkids, but my neighbor. We're commanded to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. I know there are groups that, say no are anti-vaccinators and they feel adamant about that. I have my own opinions about that, which I think a lot of these anti-vaccinators in some cases, especially childhood vaccinations, are foolish, gambling with their children's lives and putting other children at risk. But I'm called to be a good neighbor. I'm commanded to be a good neighbor. And so I see my responsibility is take care of myself, take care of my family, and take care of my neighbor. That's my responsibility. I agree. And I don't have a but or anything. I guess I still just have the the initial question which is there there seems to be this this idea that like um you know you're wearing a mask to help sandy down the road um and i've always kind of had the question like well would would sandy be fine if she got it (laughs) like is it a big deal to sandy and if it is a big deal to sandy uh she should wear an n95 not a face covering because, uh, you know, like an N95 has a much better chance. Absolutely. And so I, I don't, yeah, I never, you know, like I, so all, my story is I never once quarantined, not because I thought it was wrong or because I have any beef about it, just because it's like I have a family to support. I have things to do. Right. I'm going to live my life. Yep. Um, cheap flights. Awesome. All about it. <laughs> um, so, so you carried on and, and, and you I got, felt comfortable with that. I got COVID twice. Um, so uh, I've had COVID twice. So I'm... You know, and uh, first time was very rough for me, um, and I I just told myself, well, I knew this was the consequences of the way I'm living my life. You know, I wasn't like I didn't boohoo myself. I just right. kind of um, you took responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> you knew these were the risks, and I'm willing to take the risk. Uh, the first time I got it, I was with a mastermind group, um, and so you're talking 14 entrepreneurs. Well, I guess seven entrepreneurs and then their wives. Um, not one person on the trip got it besides me. Wow. And this is after I'm showing symptoms that I'm, I'm one, there was one. So how it all started was a huge headache that I couldn't get rid of. I never get headaches. Um, this huge headache and, uh, I'm doing anything, drinking tons of water. I'm like, maybe it's a sugar issue. So I like, I, um, I I have like a a sip of Coke. I'm like, I don't even like Coca-Cola. I'm like, maybe the sugar will fit. You know, I'm just like, something's just off. I'm like, okay, maybe I need to order this. I'm just, I can't knock this enormous headache. Drive me crazy. That's at a restaurant. That's actually before we get to the restaurant at the restaurant, get back. We, I talked to a guy, 
I'm not lying. From here to right here, because it's really loud. Everybody's talking. So I'm I'm shouting at this dude for yeah, four yeah. hours. Oh, gee. I mean, this close. Yeah, four yeah. Four hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, he never got COVID. Uh, <laughs> and so um, my wife didn't get COVID. Can you mind? Slept in the same bed. <laughs> Everything else. Um, again, works out twice a day. Very, very healthy immune yes, system. Yes, yes. Um, eats very healthy. So does the guy. Was, so was pretty much everybody in the group was, was pretty healthy. Um, and so I was like, man, it's not that I don't believe that there's super spreaders. There's people, because I know people that, you know, have done nothing and then gotten the virus. That was what was so weird to me. I mean, I knew a lady who was terrified of getting it. Um, terrified of getting yes, it. Yes, yes. Didn't leave her home. Everything delivered. Wiped off all groceries, um, which I was told it was an airborne virus. So I never got the whole and maybe you know more about this. I was told it was an airborne virus. So when people put hand sanitizer everywhere early on, I was just like, this doesn't make a lot of sense if it's an airborne virus. Um, kind of like when you see like people uh, in a room full of everyone's been vaccinated in the room and they're, they're given a press conference with face mask. It's like, this just seems like theater, <laughs> you know, like this just seems like I don't, this is what makes me, I was all for getting the vaccine until you were giving press conferences wearing a face mask when everybody in the else room, you know, like, like what am I missing here? Um, so I don't know. I just love to get, you know, I guess I had it. I got through it. I understand that I'm young and healthy. Um, I tell everyone, I say, you take the COVID death number and you then take people under 60 and watch that number drop. And then you take under 60 with no preexisting conditions and you drop that. Yeah. And then you realize that, you know, uh, because of the way they changed death certificates in March to where like, you don't like when somebody dies of COVID it's yes or no is the, the question where before, you know, somebody would die like they had cancer and they would die of something else and that would be listed, but it was cause their cause of death was cancer with COVID. It's counted as a COVID death even. Yeah. yeah. So th- there's just a lot of things around it that I think make it really suspicious. Sure. And I was wondering if you as a doctor or you as somebody who's more involved could, can maybe shine some light on on some of these things of why like uh, why everyone says wear a face covering but not an N95 when an N95 clearly seems to be the only thing that could block um, a virus and j- just kind of these just walk me through some of these things that I maybe don't understand. Well, I think an N95 because of the availability and because they wanted to make sure that there were enough for essential workers because they were having trouble, remember, getting enough PPE, personal protective equipment, in medical facilities. I think that's part of the reason, first and foremost, that yes, we know that that is really the protection, but they were struggling to keep up with that in our medical facilities. And you have people now in the lay public millions upon millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people trying to get N95s. How are we going to, how are we going to protect our health workers who are there in direct contact with that aerosol taking care of patients who are coughing, being intubated right up and close there taking care of them, being exposed to large viral numbers, large particulate matter, you yeah. know, that's in the environment up close. So that very high risk. 
I think that was a big so part of it. It was like kind of lie to everybody was the answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like the answer was to lie to everybody. You'd be like, hey, y'all don't need in 95s. No, I don't know that it was necessarily to lie. We did know that masks did provide some protection. And more than anything, the mask is not necessarily to uh, protect me, but to protect you. Okay, think about it. When a surgeon goes into the operating room, he puts on that mask, as does the rest of that operating room staff, to protect the patient from getting an infection. It's not an N95. It's a surgical mask. Yeah. But it's to protect that patient from getting a contamination to that wound. So when we're wearing a mask, the regular masks, now there were advocates, okay, double masking and, of course, these other things. But the N95, of course, is going to provide you 95 to 98% up, depending, protection against these viral particles. Um, particulate, you know, because not just a virus typically filling out there, you know, it's, you, you've got a little bit of mucus, you got some spittle with that and so forth. You know, it's not, there's just little virus. <laughs> and, <clears throat> but again, it's for the person that's wearing it to protect, although there's some protection they've come to find out, but it's really, if you've got the virus, protecting the other person from getting the virus. That's primarily what it was about so trying to trying to stop the the spread there to break that chain of spread that was the that's the real thinking behind it how do you break that chain so you don't keep propagating the disease what are your thoughts around i guess misinformation and do you think big tech has a responsibility in doing anything about misinformation or do you think that – because I believe that me, the individual, has a responsibility to educate myself on what I read. You have a responsibility, but yes. <clears throat> Unfortunately, everybody's not as well-read. Everybody's not as bright. Everybody's not as analytical as you are, Nathan. And there are, again, the individuals out there that believe this was a conspiracy so the conspiracy out there who would get on the news in some cases medical people saying well we don't know and this virus might cause this and birth defects and uh, this massive immune response so you get it it's going to rev up your immune system and cause these massive problems we don't know for sure, but theoretically it could do this. And raising all these concerns saying this is experimental and on and on. Well, this technology for the messenger RNA vaccines has been around for many years. It's not like it's just happened. They've been working on this for many, many, many years. Plus they're then saying, well, it's going to change your DNA. It is impossible for it to change your DNA. <laughs> it doesn't affect your DNA. But now some of them are spouting, well, it can change your DNA. Go back to basic science. This cannot change your DNA. So you find all these things then proliferating and groups talking about this. 
on the internet and blogs and so forth. News clips. Misinformation. And I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I think it's the greatest. I think, thank God I live in a free country there where you go. people could just freedom say dumb of, things. Freedom of the, like, the press. Freedom yeah, of People uh, think of the earth is flat. It's a real thing that people believe. And guess what? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm all about it. Good. Good for you. Good for you for exercising your amendment rights. You know, it's kind of like I have a gun on me at all times. There you go. I just want to exercise my freedoms because I feel if I don't exercise them, they might get removed from me. So I just want to kind of always keep presence of my freedoms. Um, and you're right. You can't believe everything you read. You can't believe everything you hear. Just because it's on the internet doesn't make it true. Just because <laughs> this doctor said it doesn't necessarily make it true. You have to look at the veracity of that source. I have, uh, I've been in Kenya and I'm friends with a doctor uh, outside of Nairobi in Kisumu. Mm. And I was talking to him about it. Um, and he said, you know, we, we find that what we treat, um, I guess it's malaria with, uh, is working very well with COVID. He's like, we're having a 95% success rate. Chloroquine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was like, but if, but when he posts that on Facebook, Immediately removed. Yeah. So there's been a lot of controversy. You know, and that's the kind of stuff that's, that's crazy to me. Because he's not saying take it. He's just saying like, hey guys, I just want to share mine as a doctor in Kasumu. This is, this is our anecdotal experience. <laughs> yeah. This is what we have found. Treating. He's, yeah. He's just disease. sharing information, which is the power of social media. It's what makes it beautiful. Right. Right. Um, and so that is the stuff that, that scares me. And I think it's what leads to everybody saying, I don't trust this. Like if, if you remove every article that doesn't go with one narrative, then this makes me wary of everything that narrative says, even if the narrative could be saying things that were correct. Correct. I agree that you have to wonder why are certain things shut down or dismissed there when you're – Hearing evidence, albeit it may just be anecdotal evidence, and that's what you have to understand. This is anecdotal evidence. This is not necessarily a double-blind, placebo-controlled study. Okay, this is our experience. And, and so there are different weights of evidence, okay, but this is our experience. We're seeing this. Yeah. And so, hey, look. We're just telling you what our experience is with our patients. I agree. It shouldn't be yeah. <laughs> erased. It's strange. Uh, what's your favorite um, COVID killer story in the sense of like things you can do to prevent COVID? I have mine. Oh, favorite story? <laughs> that's, that's that's ridiculous. You oh. know, somebody says that's like, oh, this, this stops COVID. It's just something insane. Oh, somebody that I saw that was – circulating that if you had early on symptoms and exposing yourself to heated air that this would kill it and i i don't know that there was any scientific <laughs> proof to this but that was circulating that as soon as you get symptoms that are suggestive there start exposing yourself to this heated air and it would kill the virus and you would not 
contract serious disease. And I'm thinking, well, there's a lot of reasons that hot air might work against you drying out your <laughs> respiratory passages, making you more prone to uh, viral penetration and not allowing the cilia and the secretions which move and uh, help remove uh, viral par- particles and other debris from the respiratory passages and help prevent penetration of things. <laughs> now you're drying out things and <laughs> impairing things and the, and the antibodies that reside uh, close to the surface and these other things that help protect us. Now, okay, let's work against that by just pouring in this hot air. I thought, eh, I don't know the re- rationale uh, uh, to this. Just in my mind, I'm thinking... I don't know, but that was one of the things I saw circulating well over a year ago. And I, I was listening, watching this video on that. And I thought, <laughs> somebody sent that to me. I remember, I can't remember who it was. Yeah, as a doctor, was, are people sending you stuff all the time? What do you think about this? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're sending me, especially, you know, the conspirists or the contrarians. And I, I will watch it or some of it, and I look at it, and it's like, eh, I don't know. You know. <laughs> I, mine happened, uh, two weeks ago. And so there's, there's a lot of not my sync time, but my COVID crazy person, COVID story requesting an Uber and uh Uber driver shows up and has all, I want to get in, rolls all the windows down. And I think made sense. You know, if I'm back here with a mask on and I guess the windows down, that would keep the air moving. You know, I don't know. And then she has the AC on at 60 degrees, keep in mind. So it's a little chilly. But she has the it's 60 degrees outside. She has AC on max, so Matt's cold, and on Matt's volume. So it's like as cold and as much as possible. With the windows down. Yeah, with the windows down. And I said, hey, could we either have the windows up or the fan a little? little I'm going to, you know, just a little. I have a jacket on, but I'm getting a little cold. Sure. And she goes, sweetie, I'm just trying to keep you safe. And I immediately lied to her. I was like, well, I've already had the vaccine. I'm wearing a mask. So I think, you know, I think I'm pretty safe, you know. And she's like, you know, this virus doesn't do well in cold weather. And I'm like, and she's like, so that's why I keep uh, as cold as possible and I keep as much circulation as possible, you know, to keep you and I both safe. (laughs) And so I said, you know, growing up, when your mom would ask you to, and I'm having to shout this to the fan, keep in mind. Right, 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 right. As <laughs> she drives. Yeah, yeah. I said, uh, growing up, and I, I'm not being combative or anything. Sure. You know, I, I just said, growing up, when your mom would ask you to wash your hands, did she ever specify to do it with warm water or cold? <laughs> and uh, she was like, uh, she's like, yeah, you and I had different upbringings. And I was like, okay. Well, I'll just end this conversation right here. <laughs> so I just sat in the back seat. And so this lady believed that cold air, not just air circulation, but specifically freezing, freezing cold, cold air, air. Would, would kill the virus. Well, think of, think <laughs> of what happened. We thought there was going to be a drop. You know, that was conjectured. Oh, maybe that was going to happen. But did we see that? As we went into the dead of winter, <laughs> we didn't see that happen. If you think about rates that happened, what, what occurred. So we found out, and that was one of the things. 
we were learning all along different things about this virus that our knowledge kept evolving. Yeah. So we thought, well, as we get into the cold months, maybe this will help kill the the virus and the rates of transmission will slow. Didn't happen. Now they're saying, okay, as we approach the hotter months, maybe this will this will happen. We had gone through the summer and what we kept seeing as we went through get in the winter, you know, see these spikes. So oh, we there. Now what are we finally seeing? We're seeing a drop, but it seems to coincide with vaccination. Yeah. So this is where my suspicion comes from. And I would love your input on this. My my experience has been the that government is not on my side. Um and you know, when I pay an insane amount of taxes, <laughs> when I uh, get pulled over for looking young, this is, doesn't happen anymore. I mean, I have a limo tin on my car. Um, when I get pulled over for having limo tin, no. <laughs> that one I understand. That one I was like, okay. Um, front windshield tint's illegal. Have you ever, <laughs> do you have tint where you had to do that? My tint's illegal? That, that, oh, it is. <laughs> what? Um, and so I've just always had this, the government's not on my side, right? And, and when, I, when I have a lunch buddy and they're feeding this lunch buddy terrible food where there's plenty of studies across Europe and probably in America, but I've seen in Europe that, hey, feeding uh, kids high sugar diets is not good for their brain and it's not good for their health and everything else. And so when I see a kid, I'm thinking, okay, government doesn't want good for their people. And that's okay. I don't expect them to do good. That's my job. It's my responsibility. It's my job to educate myself, make a good living, give back to my community, educate others. Like, I just look at this as, that's okay. You know, government does a good job of police and fire. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously more libertarian in my beliefs. I'm very small government. Um, You know, sure, their parks are fine. Um, (laughs) And so when I see stuff like Ohio announcing that they're going to do a lottery for people that have taken the vaccine – where five people are going to win a million dollars. So they're incentivizing people so much that they're saying, get the, take the vaccine, and then your confirmation gets entered in a lottery and you have a chance at winning a million dollars. And so I see stuff like that. I think, why is the government that has never cared about me before in any way, shape, or form, the same government that's going to throw me in jail because I didn't pay my taxes on time or because I didn't pay enough of them because they didn't tell me how much I owe. They told me to calculate it myself. <laughs> and then and then when I sent them a check, they were like, this isn't enough. And right, it's like, right, well, right, if you right, already right. have the number from the start, why, why? didn't you just send it to me? Um, so this, that same government now all of a sudden is telling me they deeply care about me. And and the reason that, that mask and the reason that, um, you know, the, the lottery – to win a million dollars to get a vaccine. And uh, the reason we, on on social media, we have celebrities, get we take photos of celebrities getting vaccines so we can say, hey, look, this celebrity got a vaccine. Like the reason they're pushing all of this is because they care about me. I'm like super wary of it. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, this just doesn't, they've never cared about me before and now they magically care about me. What are your, what are your general thoughts around that? Early on, I would have said, you're right. <clears throat> But as I saw those big growing spikes of disease, of hospitalizations, of deaths, then I had to step back and say, reevaluate my own opinions. Because I, I was thinking, yeah, this is government blowing this up, 
out of proportion, causing mass hysteria, government, big business, and so forth. There may still be elements in there in terms of business and so forth uh, related to some of this, yes, with the hysteria, the headlines. But I do see, can't deny the fact that we are now seeing pronounced drop in rates as we have seen significant vaccination rates. And I think that strong correlation as that has been leads me to believe that yes, there is a, this goes hand in hand, albeit there's other mitigation procedures that have gone on. But I think at the same time, your point is well taken that (laughs) when is big government on our side? Yes, we want them there for policing, want them there for fire, we want them there for uh, infrastructure, we want them there for maintaining law and order in our society, but we don't want them intruding on our rights, and unfortunately, this administration, I think, is all too well poised to continue to try to include upon our lives. That's ridiculous. 41 executive orders in the first two weeks? No. (laughs) Unfortunately, people get what they vote for. I'm sorry to say. Okay. Talked about COVID. I want to go back to you're in D.C. You leave D.C. with five kids when you're leaving D.C., right? Right. And now where, where do you go? Brook Army Medical Center, San Antonio, Texas. And you love it there. Oh, that was our favorite duty station. <clears throat> we get there. Adam is 10 years old. Chris is eight. Angelie's six. Jonathan's four. And Joey's about six months old. We get there, and San Antonio is in this 100-day heat wave. <laughs> and it's blazing hot, miserable. We're in temporary lodging as we're trying to find uh, our home or waiting to move into it. I was trying to remember if we were still trying to find it or, or waiting to move in, one or the other, still waiting for our household goods. Only had the one car because the other one we had towed because Jerry didn't want us to drive two separate cars to get there from D.C., I'm in the advanced officer. Yeah, the advanced. Yeah, the advanced officer course. So I'm getting up. I think we're getting up. Had to be at uh, for PT. I was trying to think. Five fifteen or some crazy hour of the morning. It might have been five five fifteen, but I mean it's really really early. So I'm getting up about four thirty in the morning to get there for PT because it's so hot that they wanted us to do PT early and then come home, well, back to the temporary housing we're at, shower, get dressed, and I'm in class till about 4.30, come home, <laughs> you know, the kids and sure in this temporary lodging. 
<laughs> it's hot and miserable. <laughs> and we were there for about three weeks, four weeks. And right afterwards, you know, trying to get the family in, but my boss again, Skip, I need you to come to work <laughs> again. I need you here. And so then I start working shortly after the course. So within days after the course ended, I'm starting at Brook Army Medical Center. And when is your second deployment overseas? When does that happen? That happens 2003. Okay. Um, and your oldest is 13. So 2003, so yes. So Adam would have been, yeah, yeah, because he's born 84. What is the weight of leaving the country with a wife and five babies at home. Whenever you go into a war zone, you realize that you might not come back or that you might come back maimed. And you understand that your spouse has to manage everything, all the household duties, taking care of your kids, and you understand the weight on them. I understood, okay, my job now is to take care of soldiers. So I put my game face on. I know what I signed up for. Sherry knows what we've signed up for. We're committed to that. Yeah, uh, quick side note. You only had to do four years in the military. Only had at this to do point, four years. you're at 10. Okay, we came in at 89. This is 2000. Let's see, so... So 13 80, years. Yeah. 14 years. Um, so what? at what point did you decide, I love being here and I want to be here? We went into the Army uh, with the idea it's going to be a career. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. So it wasn't something, oh, as we went along. No. <laughs> Although there was a time, we'll come to that here. Um, okay. So second deployment. Second deployment. And I'm saying. So game face, but you understand the gravity and the all the responsibilities and how do you even communicate this to your kids that you're going away and that there's a chance you die I, I, don't, I just don't ugh, it's so heavy they're they're sad they're I don't know if they understand the gravity but they understand you're going to be gone a long time that you're going to be gone a year up to a year that's what we were scheduled to be gone was a year they they're sad Got teenagers, three of them at home. Let's see, yeah, well, 13, 11. So, no, they're not teenagers at that point. But you understand that it's going to be hard. They, they understand some of, the, some of that, but at their age, I don't think the full implications of that. I always had this philosophy doing this, that the safest place for me is in God's will. Yeah. Even in a war zone, if that's where I'm meant to be, that's the safest place for me. That's the mentality I went into these situations with. Of course, when you're in those situations, you're always on a heightened alert. There's always this sense that something could happen at any moment. And it wasn't only until you get back on safe ground that you have this sense of. So that's how you go into that. And it's, 
It's difficult. Uh, saying goodbye to your children. Kissing your wife goodbye. Knowing I might not see them again. That and is difficult to do that. And then to turn, turn away and go load up on that plane. Now, is it a love for your country or a love for your fellow man? What's the, there's a passion that drives it. And I know the correct answer is I love for my country, but is it, you know, correct answer versus how you actually feel <laughs> can be different. I think it's a combination of things. Yes, it's a love for your nation. It's a love for your fellow soldiers. It's a commitment to your calling. I'm a soldier. I'm a physician. I'm committed to taking care of others. And this is what God has called me to. So yes, it's, it's all of that. Plus, yes, we're there to liberate the people of Iraq from this butcher. You know, Saddam Hussein was rightly called the butcher of Baghdad. Were you there when the statue fell, when they ripped that down? I was. I didn't get to see it. <laughs> but I've never seen them in the news <clears throat> and being like, man, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> but we were in, in theater at that time, yes. <clears throat> and where, where were you staying? Initially, we were staged in Kuwait. We celebrated Easter, I remember, and I believe it was the day after Easter that we crossed from Kuwait into Iraq. Did you deal with people on their deathbeds ever? I have to go back. While I was there, I had some patients that were, if not for life-saving treatment, would have died. I had to pronounce different deaths and come out and write the death certificates later, tell commanders, yes, your soldiers didn't make it. Um, so, yeah, I dealt with death situations. Uh, I mean, did you ever have a conversation with somebody as they were dying? And how did those conversations go? Well, not, not that I recall there at that, with that deployment, but um, I've had many many discussions with dying patients. All right. That second deployment, how long does it last? A year. And you get out unscathed? I come out unscathed. And I did have the opportunity <clears throat> my last three and a half months. We were in Mosul, Iraq, up in the northern sector, and we were there in support of the 101st, Airborne Division, Air Assault, and General Major General Petraeus at that time was the division commander of the 101st Airborne Division. And I became the officer in charge of the 21st Combat Support Hospital there thought, in Mosul. I thought his last name was Petraeus growing up. Um, <laughs> and I'm not even making a joke, like nothing against the guy, but it's just because they would say it so fast. And I would never, I never saw it spelled out. I just always heard it. Like, that guy's got the strangest last name. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. So I get to work closely with General Petraeus 
and his staff. Oh, my gosh, what an amazing man. What an amazing staff. And one of the things I came to find out that I didn't see with warfighters was this. Because I would think of physicians, healthcare personnel, chaplains, social workers. We are caretakers. But what I came to find out at the end of the day, warfighters are also caretakers. Couldn't believe the pain that I would see and feel from these men, a General Petraeus or his um, assistant division commanders or his brigade commanders, and you'd have to come out and say, sir, I'm sorry, but your soldier didn't make it or your soldier is in critical condition. I remember one time a soldier, he was in the ICU of our hospital and brought General Petraeus in to see the soldier, explained to him what was going on. And very compassionately, he's stroking the head of this soldier, calling him by name. And he's saying, you need to stay strong. Your family needs you. And we need you. And you could just feel that. And when we have to tell them their soldier didn't make it. It's like just that pain. We feel that pain as medical personnel. Somebody dies. When we take care of these soldiers and air back them and they're maimed. But I felt that with these war fighters. And I come to understand at the end of the day, they too are caretakers of their soldiers. That was such a poignant lesson for me that I'd never understood. And had I not been the officer in charge, I would have never been able to interact with somebody as amazing as General Petraeus, as his subordinates, and to come to understand that side of warfighters. So, I don't quite understand military rankings. Uh, you were a colonel. colonel, and that's right before you start to get one star, two star, three star, right four before star. Before you become a brigadier general, one star. At that time, General Petraeus was a major general, two star. Then there's a lieutenant general, three star. And then a general, which is four star. And of course, General Petraeus later would be a four star general. How many of those exist right now? How many four stars? Yeah. I don't know, 70-some maybe in the (laughs) entire army. That's crazy. So how do you— Maybe no, there's not 70 four-star generals. There are far less than that. I don't know how many. So a very small amount is the point I want to get back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how many— how do you move up in rankings? Uh, um, is it all about just how long you're there or is it also about how many deployments you do? Like how is, what's the formula to moving up? Does somebody nominate you? Well, there's called when, when you become at a, at a certain point, then you're what's called in the zone. Now in some people, they're actually promoted what we call below the zone. 
So these are your superstars that are on a fast track, oftentimes have a superstar mentor, have done special jobs. and Like the dude that killed Bin Laden. He probably got upgraded, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, he was, a, he was in the special forces, so he was kind of this unique operator. But people that get on the fast track early on, take on special jobs, have special a special mentor or mentors. So they get on the screen of people very early who make decisions, and these people become promoted below the zone. Most of us, we come up at a time and then you know we're below the zone, and then we come into the zone. And so our packets are submitted before the review board. And they look at our our OER's officer efficiency reports that are done regularly. They look at our other packets, our physical fitness scores, our official picture and other data on us. And then based on that, our duty assignments, et cetera, et cetera, they look at all that and then all this panel on the um, – Review committee then decide which of us are going to be promoted. And the higher you go up in rank, the more selective that becomes. So as you go from – from, so if you're a captain – I come in as a captain. So doctors come in as a captain. So I'm a captain then getting promoted to major. If you've done everything right, unless you've really screwed up and don't make weight and you know, are real – mess up you're likely you're to, making weight I'll you're tell you likely that. <laughs> likely to be promoted to major uh if you've done things right and you've done them well lieutenant colonel it becomes harder colonel definitely becomes harder there's plenty of people that retire as lieutenant colonels that don't get promoted to colonel but then it becomes far more selective to move into the general ranks to become a general first at one star and then of course successively increasingly selective would you be a one star or two star if you were still in the military is that kind of how that would work because you've been there so long you're so good at what you do i i doubt it because i didn't take on the jobs to get on the track (laughs) early (laughs) on you've got to decide this is what i'm going to do these are the jobs that i'm going to do to get me on the radar to put me in contention to be a general officer you've got to decide that generally early on in your career i liked being a clinician i liked being a teacher and so the jobs i took allowed me to be a clinician allowed me to teach residents and others throughout my career and those are the jobs that I gravitated towards in order to move into the general ranks you're going to take a lot of other types of jobs although I had the deployments what I come to find out especially as we moved into the prolonged conflicts is the army had decided that deployments were not going to whether or not you've been deployed was not going to be a factor in whether or not you're promoted or whether or not you're selected to command in a 
for a medical facility. That that command, um, which I thought was crazy. I had at one point, you know, been deployed for two and a half years and then finally three and a half years. And I remember writing to some of these people that were higher ups and in the know and saying, I don't understand this. <laughs> How can some of us be deployed for years and some of our counterparts have yet to deploy, especially in this prolonged conflict? And the only reason you can't be deployed is you've got to be sequestered away. That was my opinion in a job and simply find a way to maneuver yourself and never to deploy and that not be a criteria, not be a criterion rather in terms of command or promotion. Yeah. But they specifically came out with the instructions to the review board. This will not inf- be a determining factor. I thought that was outrageous. I thought – and I mean, I was fuming when I read those instructions. Yeah. And I remember sending that up through the chain saying, I cannot believe this. Did a lot of people feel that way? There were some that felt that way. There's others. They gave me this blah, 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 <laughs> blah. And I, thought, I, you know, I can, um, you know, we communicated back and forth via email. And I just, after a few times, just left it at that thinking. I don't agree. I don't buy these answers. I think this is foolishness is what I was thinking. I still do. I, I think how, how do you not take that as a criterion when people put their lives at risk, people spend in some cases years away from their family and the things they undergo and people are back here either you know, in Europe, Japan or elsewhere and primarily in the U.S. doing things and you equate that service with – Deployment. It, yeah. it made absolutely one still requires, does make one requires you to leave your family and enter a high risk zone. The other requires you to do your job, but you still are with your family and, absolutely. and, a, and safe. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's obviously a big difference there. It kind of like telling somebody you can go through two doors, both doors have the same outcome, but one you have a 70% chance of getting shot. Both doors are going to lead to the same place. <laughs> but one, you have a 70% chance of getting shot if you go through it. You're like, yeah, I'm probably going to take – you know, I mean, again, they're just different. Um, you know, it's like my sister getting her car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there are – in my mind, there are, there are inequities. But in any system, there are going to be inequities. Especially and, a government system. And okay. so <laughs> – yeah, yeah. But I would tell people at the end of my career – if I had to do it over, I would have still do, do it, you know. And so let's let's skip there. Okay. When did you retire? I retired in 2014. Okay. De- De- December 31st, 2014 was my last day. How old were you? Oh, 2014, I would have been 50, 50, 57. 57. I was just guessing, but I remember you, you said you were 68. 58. Um, I was like, don't trust my math. I didn't do any math. I kind of just guessed. So is that retiring young or is that retiring normal age? That's or? retiring older than most people. Okay. Remember, I came in a bit older. I'm a physician. <clears throat> so older than a lot of now, did my you, counterparts. Did you ever think about going into private practice or was once it's done, time for me to hang out with my grandkids, no, my wife? I, I never wanted private practice per se. 
because of the headaches of running a business and the headaches I heard of men and what the current medical climate is <clears throat> in terms of running a, bus- a medical practice. Plus, at my age, it's like I don't want to start that up. <clears throat> I did some locum tenens, short-term work with the uh, Veterans Administration towards the end of 2015 after I got my Texas medical license. I was behind the eight ball because of my depression in 2013, 2014 that I didn't get my Texas medical – I didn't get started, pardon me, on applying for my Texas medical state license and looking for jobs before we left the Army, as I had intended to back in 2013. So as I sank into that pit, it just really threw a monkey wrench into our plans. So I didn't – start applying for my Texas State medical license until January of 2015. And that became an ordeal. I didn't finally get my license till September. <laughs> that was just crazy. So I couldn't practice in Texas without a Texas State medical license. At least I couldn't practice in a civilian sector. Yeah, I could practice in a military or a uh, – in the military system – with an unrestricted medical license, which I had from the state of Ohio that I had kept since my residency days, <laughs> but wow. I couldn't practice in the state of Texas. So I did some locum tenens there towards that end of that in the fall of 2015. But then I thought after a few months, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I'm living out a suitcase. I'm staying in this <laughs> uh, you know, lodging here. We were in Montgomery, Alabama. I was commuting to <laughs> Tuskegee, about an hour away each way. I'm not sleeping in my own bed. I'm not going to my own church. I'm not home with my Toastmasters club. I'm not there close to my kids and grandkids. I've already been gone three and a half years. Of course, my wife was there with me. But why am I subjecting myself to this? <laughs> yeah. Why am I doing this? I, I thought, <laughs> this isn't worth it. So we told me, I told me, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Went back home. Then the next uh, year, I started working with at Hope Clinic in Waxahachie. And Hope Clinic is what's called a federally qualified health center. And the mission of federal qualified health centers is to take care of the medically underserved. So 60, 60, 60% of my patients were, had no insurance. And the majority of the rest were medically underinsured. And how long did you do that for? I did that till last year. Oh, okay. And so are you planning on reentering or is, there, or is it done? I plan on doing some more medical work, but different. I only want to, and I was only working uh, three days a week, albeit putting in many more more hours than what I was doing, and that was part of the story of why I left. Uh, is there? I don't want to put in that many hours. But there were other reasons. Yeah, I've never had a doctor before, so I'm looking at you, and I'm like, uh, can I just hire you and pay you a monthly fee? And then, <laughs> um, there are people that do that, and it's called concierge medicine, where doctors. Don't accept any insurance. They say I'm only going to have maybe. Yeah, I've heard of. I have a couple of rich two, friends that do this. Two hundred <laughs> patients, 
and this is my fee, but I'm available to you, you know, other than, you know, for short intervals, you know, when I'm on vacation or whatever, but I'll still, you know, be able to contact me by phone or whatever within reason. But I, you know, longer appointment times, you're going to, it's going to be cash payment only. Um, We're not going through the middleman and I am your doctor and this is how we're doing it. And so there are doctors that have gone to that because they are so fed up with all the blue tape and the insurance companies. And that's, that's a big part of what led me to say, I don't want to do this anymore because I felt day in and day out. If you decide to do that, I want to be your first client. Thank you, sir. Because I was so frustrated wrestling with insurance companies every day. They they became so obstructionist. I felt like they're only in this for the money. They don't really want to take care of patients. An insurance company in it for the money? (laughs) What? What? (laughs) Are you kidding me? I was taught an insurance agent. And I said, my understanding of insurance is this. It's something you're forced to have. And then when you finally need to use it, they tell you that it doesn't qualify. (laughs) And that's my entire life experience. And, you know, maybe there are people that work for good companies that set you up differently. But my life experience has just been like, oh, it's something you're required to have. Um, and if you need to use it, they won't ever pay up, you know? (laughs) Well, my experience is actually with the two insurance companies that I can say that it's been different. And that's TRICARE that we have by virtue of being in the military. So medical care, since we've retired from the army, one of the best insurance. I mean, it's outstanding. The premiums I pay would make people cry because the annual premiums I pay are less in some cases than some of my siblings pay every month. Wow. And the co-pays are very nominal. So TRICARE has been phenomenal. And that's by virtue of our service. So I'm very grateful for that. USAA that we have, our home insurance and our car insurance, particularly for the car, has been great. So when there's been problems with the cars, USSA, USAA has been terrific. That's thank been you, thank you for plugging industry. two companies that I have no way of accessing because I'm not a veteran <laughs> either of my parents. Really appreciate it. This is a great help for everybody who's not a veteran. I'm just saying, uh, you know, for, for us, those two. We get again, it. You're privileged. Uh, yes, I am indeed. But it came with a price. It came with a yeah. big price. So I, I do appreciate Thank that. you for your service. Uh, you're welcome. So I guess before we wrap up, is there anything uh, different about the third deployment that was different than the first and second? So dive the, well, it's actually, there was one deployment I didn't mention. That was to Haiti. And that was on the hills of before we left uh, Fort, or, uh, when we were in <clears throat> at Fort Hood at Darnall Army Medical Center. <clears throat> so I deployed 2003-2004 with 21st Combat Support Hospital, 21st Cash. And then in 97, yeah, 97, 98, yeah, I, there in January of 98, I left with the U.S. support group Haiti and was in Haiti for seven months. So I did that. Then the what last- What were you doing of, in Haiti? We were there to support the various groups, Coast Guard- Navy, 
small contingent of army, those that were there, um, peacekeeping, not peacekeeping, but the military and civilian components, UN, etc., there in Haiti. But primarily what we did was take care of Haitians. We'd go out for goodwill missions and met, take, and go out and take care of them. Do you, when you go to some of these countries and you land, do you feel a dark presence in some of these countries? Yeah. And Haiti, definitely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No doubt about it. I've heard, because I've heard. No doubt about it. I've asked non-believers this and they're like, no. And then I've asked believers and every believer I've ever asked has been like, you just feel and, the darkness. And what's interesting because, you know, Haiti, if you look at the island of Hispanola, you have Haiti and then you have the Dominican Republic. And we would, uh, I think twice we were able to take some R&R for a day and a half to go over to the Dominican. And first of all, Haiti, they've deforested it to use the timber to make things and to for to burn for um, cooking and so forth. So it's largely deforested. But you get to the border of the Dominican, and when you get there, it's like a forest. It's beautiful. But you get across the border, and it's an entirely different atmosphere. There's this lightness to it. It's, it's again, that sense of, ah. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you cross the border, I noticed that. It was amazing. And then again, when you go across the border back to Haiti, it's like this. So yes, there is definitely a spiritual aspect to that. I pray for the Haitians because, oh my gosh, we have literally poured hundreds of billions of dollars into that nation, but it's done little to help the Haitian people because you had such corrupt leaders over many decades who have all they've done is to line their pockets and it's done little and unfortunately many Haitians have simply it's become a welfare state they're waiting for the next handout they're waiting for the next non-government agency or the government agents come along and provide this medical care provide this provide that and so it's it's harmed the people in many ways rather than giving them a hand up they're it's given them a handout and it's sad. Teach a man to fish or yeah, give it, fish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's tragic. It's tragic. So that was 97, 98. My last deployment then was uh, 2020, 2011. And then I spent a year in Baghdad. A year away from your family again? Yep. How does your wife do it, man? We should have her on. <laughs> that was one of the roughest with Sherry. At that time, we only had one child left at home, Joey. And it was a very lonely year for Sherry, difficult year for her. And when I came back, she said, and it was it was difficult too, because I had come home for R and R. I had timed it to come home for R and R. And bring, you you've left unscathed at all of these. Yeah, it's crazy. But we'll come back to that in a minute here, if I may. In December, I had planned for all our kids to meet us in Denver, and we were going to celebrate Christmas in Denver. My daughter had met a young man 
Colton Johnson, and she wanted the family to meet him. So I knew things were serious. So he had come to Denver to meet us. Find out that the man, the doctor that I was there to advise, he was in charge of the Iraqi um, police force forces, which numbered 450,000 different police forces that they have throughout the nation for the medical care. And I was there to advise him regarding that, that he got assassinated. And his wife and kids were in the car. So that's the news I got called from, from my commander. He called me a few days after Christmas. I remember getting that call. And how painful that was, that this man who was sacrificing, putting himself at risk to help rebuild his country, that now these, this faction, these radicals, at some point here, at some intersection somewhere in the city, assassinated him, and then in front of his wife and kids. That was so painful. And then to go back into theater knowing that, working with a different doctor then. But wherever you went, you know, it was, you had to have a buddy. You are always armed. Um, when you'd go across the city, you were in an armored vehicle. You had the... Individuals that they had hired, you know, were there to, to provide security and so forth. But it was always, you were always on this heightened alert where you're going to hit an IED, somebody going to shoot at you. Do you ever watch an IED go out in front of you or anything? Uh, like thank goodness, no. Uh, but you always were aware. And when you took a flight, you, had to, you know, sometimes when you'd have to fly someplace, it was always, oh, <laughs> you know, risk. Oh, if thinking, I just get shot down. Yeah, yeah. Thinking, oh, you know, praying, Lord, <laughs> hope, you know, please protect us. I don't want to, you know, be shot down. And thankfully, no. But you mentioned unscathed. After my first deployment to Iraq, I remember coming back and I literally felt like getting down my hands and knees and kissing the ground. I was so relieved because. As I said, my last few months there, I was in charge of the hospital. 220 personnel, their safety, everything we needed to run the hospital, medical care, air evacuation, force protection for the hospital, all the logistics. The buck stopped here. Of course, I didn't know how to do all that, but I had a great staff that could advise me, but the buck stopped here. And when we landed... Back at Fort Hood, got off that plane. There was this sense of, again, I felt like a 250-pound gorilla crawled off my back because I had set four goals for us when I took over as officer in charge to continue to provide excellent medical care, to have a smoothless transition to the care with the 67th Combat Support Hospital, 
to make sure all of our personnel got home safely and to glorify God. And when we landed, I felt in my, I knew we had provided great medical care. We had already had that outstanding, smooth transition of the hospital over to the 610th cash. All 220 of our personnel came home safe. And I could say in my heart, yes, Lord. I did glorify you. But still, like I said, that weight, that 250-pound gorilla crawled off my back. Was that every deployment you felt that way? (sighs) The relief, yes, but more so with that one because of the responsibility that I had for those 220 hospital personnel that they were my responsibility. I was responsible to take care of them and get them home safely. So you're 64 years old. What does the next 40 years look like? Next 40 years. I love speaking. I love sharing my story of depression, and there's a lot more to it. And I outline and talk about that in my book. What's the website for it? www.wrestlingisnotforwimps.com You got to get like an acronym that's short. Yeah, I agree. So I want to get on stages to talk to men, to talk to tough guys. Because, yeah, I'm a tough guy. Lifelong wrestler. National Veterans Wrestling Champion. Soldier. Colonel. Been in the war zones. You see, I moved in these circles that oozed with testosterone. See, I identified with these guys. That's who I was. And that's part of what got me into trouble in terms of my depression. But I understand that mentality. And I, as I said, I'm called to speak into the lives of men who are struggling to help them, to talk about this message and to attack the stigma of mental illness. So getting on stages, talking to to men, especially the tough guys, I'm in a course right now to create a TED Talk. Now I'll be working on that. I think I mentioned Toastmasters to you. I'm a distinguished Toastmaster. I love Toastmasters. <laughs> <laughs> so I continue to work on my speech craft. I do want to keep my finger in medicine. I love taking care of patients. You can be my doctor. I'm, you know, again, you don't have to beg me. I will, I will allow that. I love taking care of patients. I do. We have five grown children. I have four grandchildren right now. The oldest is 11, my grandson, Eamon, my two granddaughters, twins, Mika and Marley, and then my youngest grandson, Calder, will be four in July. Now, Calder's been coming to our house because my daughter and son-in-law, Colton, 
they lived less than 10 minutes away from us. In Midlothian. He's been coming to our house when he, since he's been a few months old. Three days a week. So we take care, help take care of him. He is just a great kid. So much fun. So I'm Guampa and Sherry <laughs> is Guama. Well, right now, you when he comes in the house, if Sherry's there, it's all about Guama. It's funny sometimes. I'll say, you want to play here? No, I don't. No, no, thank you. <laughs> well, he, he wants Guama, you know, but, but if it's time to go play outside, then it's all about Guampa. But when Sherry's not there, oh, yeah, he likes to play with Guampa, <laughs> but otherwise, it's all about Guama. What, uh, out of all your kids, any of them doctors, any of them veterans? Well, yes, my son, Jonathan, our second youngest, he's a doctor. He... As married to a doctor, Natalie. So the doctors in Mondragon, they are finishing up their residency. Jonathan in emergency medicine, Natalie in internal medicines. Same as, same as me. They are finishing up at Baylor Scott and White in Temple. They will be relocating to Houston, Natalie's hometown. She'll be continuing on in a fellowship in geriatrics. Wow. So very proud of them, very proud of my son, and we love talking medicine. Oh, my gosh, you know, we ain't talk and <laughs> cases and this and that and things we see, and it, it's it's great fun. And I'm so proud of my kids. I'm so proud of them. So he's he's the only one in medicine. None of the others had any, <laughs> any inkling. And nobody any became a veteran either? No, sir. Wow. No, none of them went in the military service. In fact, I thought Jonathan, I thought Angeli, excuse me, I thought Angeli, and Jonathan would especially be well-suited for the military and to go to one of the service academies. And as they were beginning to move into their junior and particularly senior years of college, I remember talking to them say, you sure you don't want to go into the, <laughs> to one of the service academies? You sure you don't want to apply for a scholarship, an ROTC scholarship, and both of them, their reply was, no, Dad, we have already served. And indeed, they had. Yeah, just moving around all the time, being, yeah, I mean, it's got to be tough on everyone. Yeah, moving around, me gone, three yeah. and a half, you know, those years out of their lives, and just the life of a doctor. Yeah. You know, being on call, <laughs> gone all night, you're called away on weekends, you work on holidays. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, people always talk about how much doctors make. <laughs> but when you break it down hourly, it's actually not that great. <laughs> you know, like and, and, when you, the amount of time and amount of education, you know, like um, I, I crossed six figures for the first time when I was 16. Um, and... All I did was learn how to build a website and sell t-shirts on it. Wow. You know, so like I look at it as like, yeah, I didn't really, you know, I just knew how to click publish on the internet. <laughs> you were innovative and you were hard charging. And so and- I, uh, I'm one of those people who's like, I don't think doctors get paid enough. When I look at the actual work schedule and education and everything that goes into it, I'm like, yeah, like I, I get it. Yeah. And um, I used to, I used to think that the same thing, they, they get paid too much until I became a physician. <laughs> then I realized they don't paid nearly much, especially primary care physicians like I am. It's yeah. like, oh my gosh, the time, the energy, the effort. But you also really care about people. Yes, sir. 
Not all doctors do. I think that's safe to say. Right. Let me just go back to one thing, if I can circle back. So you were talking about coming back unscathed. And I started and I got off track. When I came back the first time from Iraq, I mentioned that relief. And a couple things. One, people think because they see these reunions of families when soldiers return and they think, ah, everything's great now. (laughs) The work of three years of catching up to do. (laughs) The work then begins. You have this very short kind of honeymoon period, but now you're trying to reintegrate into your family. Your, Your spouse has changed. You've changed. Your kids have especially changed. The family dynamics have changed. So now you're trying to fit back in and find that new normal. I remember coming back and sitting next to my sweetheart thinking this person I love more than anybody else in the world. But feeling kind of awkward around her. <laughs> I've been gone for a year. Just this awkwardness. And having to now readjust and find that, you know, talking and sharing and this is a person that means more to me than I can say but that awkwardness and getting over that and learning to reintegrate with the family it's difficult and to the uninitiated they don't understand how difficult that is and the difficulty of being away from your family that long the other is after that uh, that deployment that I noticed was how my emotions were like this. Boom, boom. I'd go from being elated to being sad in tears to being angry. I remember sharing this with one of my colleagues. And they said, Skip, you know, anger is a secondary emotion. I kind of thought, hmm. A couple days later, shared it with another person. You know, Skip, (laughs) anger is a secondary emotion. Hmm. Hmm. Day or so later, share it with a third colleague. You know, Skip, anger is a secondary emotion. At that point, bing, 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 bing. Pay attention to this, Skip. So I began to reflect on that. What's going on? And as I began to reflect on that, what I understood is I was grieving. Yes, I came home. I wasn't maimed, but I lost a year out of my family's life. They lost a year out of my life. Birthdays, anniversary, holidays, special occasions. Games. You, exactly, their activities, their school activities. You never get that back. That's gone. I was grieving. I was grieving those soldiers that we lost. I was grieving those soldiers that were maimed. I was grieving. And when I could get that out in the open, and I could understand that. Now I could understand why I could go from elation to being home sadness and just crying into this anger that I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. 
And now my emotions were more like this. And I could, I could understand. Do you it. think that a lot of people suppress all these things? They don't oh ask anybody, my. they don't talk to anyone. It gets worse and worse, and oh, then they go do something yes. crazy. I mean, is that well, not necessarily something crazy, but they they end up depressed. Of course, some of them come back with PT, many with PTSD, and then as men, as soldiers, as tough guys, just get suppressed and suppressed and suppressed, and they self-medicate, drugs, alcohol, pornography, gambling, food, you know, maladaptive behaviors, disruptions in their family, can be lead to domestic violence, but not necessarily even that, but, you know, bickering, fighting with their spouses, divorce, you know, problems on the job. You mentioned the one soldier that you were talking about that ended up homeless, drug addicted, I think you said. Nope, just no, homeless. Just Everything homeless. Everything was fine, yep. Or alcohol. Alcohol. So all these problems and these ramifications, and a big part of that is because of all that suppression and not recognizing or that pain or that trauma or that hurt, not just the army, but all those things that happen before you come into the army that you bring with you and haven't dealt with. Yeah. So once I could put my finger on what was going on, I could grieve appropriately. And that's one of the lessons that I learned. But even with that, I think I forgot about that. And then as time moved on and life moved on, that tough guy again was there, and that's part of the problem that led me into the depression. Skip, how can people connect with you? The easiest way is at Skip WNW on Facebook or Twitter. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Oh, it's been my delight, Nathan. This has been amazing. <laughs>